Hi, I'm Tanisha Collins from Future Men and Fatherhood, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Gather round and let me tell you the legend of Neil Before Pod with his host, me, Craig. And we're here to discuss Thor, Love and Thunder. Joining me for this discussion, she is armed with a stuffed animal and not afraid to use it. It's Cat. <laughs> That's right. Teddy bear enemies beware. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Also joining, he has finally learned how to use his magic eyes. It's Aaron. I don't understand, but hello. But well, that's good going at a Thor discussion. You don't understand this point of view. We'll get to it. Don't worry. Okay. Once we tell you what it don't is, worry. you'll say, oh, yeah, that was in the film. I know it is in the film. I thought it might have had a connection to me, but maybe it's just connected the film. If that's it, then that's fine. I get that. Perhaps you're joining this discussion using your magic eyes. Okay. Right. You could be. People Move on. can't see you. Run for it. Anyway, Thor Love and Thunder, the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We are here to discuss it because we discuss everything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So as always, we will start with our spoiler-free thoughts. So Kat, why don't you kick us off? What did you think of this film? Oh boy, as the resident superfan, I guess, Thor is my favourite character and the first Thor movie is my favourite Marvel movie so far. Still right there. And uh, I didn't like this one. It really ground my gears in a bunch of places. I think it definitely is Thor Ragnarok light. It's trying to be its predecessor, but it's worse at it. And the stuff that I liked about Ragnarok actually kind of irked me here. The thesis of the film is interesting, but I don't think that it's executed very well. And I suppose we'll get into the whys, but suffice to say that the source material on which this film is based is so much better. And I really wish we got that film, but instead we got this one. It's a two-star movie for me. My God, throw it at the bottom of the pile of all the Marvel shit. <laughs> Very disappointed, very mad, very sad about it, because I do believe that Thor deserves better. All the characters in it deserve better, for that matter. Okay, we'll definitely get into that. We should have a bit of a <laughs> debate going, which is almost rare, although it's been happening a bit more lately. We had a disagreement over the Batman and yeah, that's true. Multiverse of Madness, so perhaps we are getting more widened in our appraisals of things, but we'll see. Aaron, what were your thoughts? I'll give you my thoughts, but first of all, I just have to check with Cat. It's worse than Thor 2. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I found myself <laughs> kind of yearning for the dark world. Can you imagine, Aaron? Wow. We've discussed the dark world. You know my feelings on that one. I found myself being like, truly, I think I prefer that one. <laughs> I'm stunned. I don't know if I can speak anymore. I think I'm too stunned. <laughs> Close your magic eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did I think? Fair enough. Yeah, what did you think? I thought that this one was pretty much the director. If you like Taika Waititi, then this is your film. And he lent into himself really hard. It's like Thor 3 was, he got to do his style on top of Marvel 
and blended them and they said that really worked so this time because your stuff worked you can really go for it and i guess i preferred it when he was more of a flavor than the main course so i did enjoy it enough to watch it it wasn't a thought too for me but i have to admit the style of humor the level of humor where they were going i preferred it slightly toned down in ragnarok it's quite telling well sorry not maybe not telling but there was a moment in the start of the film that i thought they were going to do something that i think would have explained it better for me which is when you get korg narrating and when you get the silliness coming in throughout I'm thinking, well, this is all completely explainable if it's all from Korg's perspective. If he's just retelling you it in his comic way, well, then of course it's all going to come across as a bit comic because that's how he sees it. He doesn't mean to, but that's his personality. But then they didn't lean into that. They didn't end the film with him turning around to his kids and saying, and that's how it happened. I would have got it then. I would have understood the flavor because I think as Kat alluded to here, the seriousness of the plot could lean into something really dark and horrible. I mean, whole races of people have to suffer in order for the main villain to get to his point. And then his own fall into something really quite horrible, where he becomes a mass murderer. It's really dark. And so they take what seems like a massively dark plotline and make it fun and joyous and unicorns and pink shiny things and i'm not even exaggerating there are pink shiny things in this i didn't hate it but i did think it was very weird okay so we have a didn't like somewhere in the middle and there's me i really enjoyed this i thought it was a lot of fun was it as good as ragnarok no was the plot as deep as it could have been no but did i enjoy it in spite of that yes Perhaps I'm not thinking about it as critically as I should, but I don't feel like the film invited me to think about it as critically as I should either. So maybe I'm just being shallow in my enjoyment of this, but we'll unpack all that, I suppose, as we descend into the spoilers. But yes, I'm on the side of really enjoying this. So we do have a good balance here. Thanos would be happy. Everything would be perfectly balanced by the end of this podcast. He wouldn't need to wipe out some of us. He probably would anyway, but he wouldn't need to. So shall we... Summon the spoilers. Okay, let's start with the title character, Thor. Well, there are two Thors in this film, but the original one, the OG Thor, let's start with him. Starts off the film, pretty simple arc, setting up that he is unsure about who he is or what he is and where he fits in the universe. And when we discussed the trailer cat, we talked about he's had a lot of labels over the years. God, son of a king, possible king, avenger. Now Guardian, Ravager perhaps, all these different labels, and he's a bit confused about who he is. So just as a starting point, I guess, Aaron, what do you think of where we started with him, with him being a bit directionless and looking for somewhere to be and somewhere to belong? It's an easy win, I think, to open your hero needing to create a new life. And the directions that they can go in are so varied here that he could follow the guardians he could stay with his own people he could forge out on his own there's so much that that could have gone on to it was an easy win it's definitely the right place if you're asking me did i enjoy that alone then yes if you're asking me do i think they resolved that and gave him a new ideology i guess i didn't even see that really happening i mean he's a dad now but i guess i didn't really see a massive emotional journey but i don't really think i was supposed to because it was 
a comedy. It was pure comedy. It didn't really lean into any of the tragedy. The ending that will come to, despite being a really great idea, had no real emotional impact for me. I thought, oh, well, that's a good idea. Oh, I quite like the sound of that, what you've done there. But it didn't really play out with any impact. But again, how could it? It's a comedy. Kat, what about you? What did you think of his starting point? I'm very inclined to agree with Aaron. When we discussed the trailer on the news podcast a while back, I thought, my God, this is bringing tears to my eyes. It's interesting to delve into that kind of question. Who are you after you've saved the world? And what do you do after your big work is done? What next? And... Thor's always kind of had a bit of an identity crisis to start with. The first film is very much about him realizing that he doesn't think he wants to be king. And it's the role that he's been preparing for his whole life. And after everything that's happened with the Avengers and with Thanos and then Ragnarok and all the rest of it, it's like, okay, now what? And I was so ready for even a comedic exploration of that. I thought Ragnarok did quite a good job at bringing Thor into the rest of the space world of the Marvel Universe and asking the question of who are you in relation to all these space people? Because you're also from space, but you're not really part of this lot. So what if you were? What happens then? And Chris Hemsworth has a very natural comedy to him. He has great timing, I think. He plays off of others very well. So it was an interesting premise. And kind of like Aaron says, the same deal with the ending point, it didn't have an impact on me. I don't think that we built towards that at all. It was like, suddenly there's a solution. It's like, ah, I didn't think of that. I guess that's fine. But there's all this other stuff that was kind of thematically worked through the film that fizzles out, I think. But yeah, the starting point, I was so pumped. I do have two thoughts on the end point, actually. In terms of what happens, I don't think either of them are developed particularly well, but I think they are both kind of in the film. So the whole being a dad thing, it's hinted at when you see the Jane-Thor relationship flashback, where you see him looking at a crib or something like that, or a baby buggy and looking a bit wanting, I suppose. So that's there, but that's the only reference to it. And then the other possibility is he gets this thing dropped in his lap and he realises that being a parent was something that he was missing and he didn't know he was missing it. But again, it doesn't really cover either of those. So you could make arguments for both because they're both sort of in the film, but they're not floated as an explanation. I think that's what we're saying, though. Yeah. We see that it's in the film. I would say that about the ending. Oh, yeah, I see that's in the film. But I'm saying that even despite that, the delivery means that it had no emotional impact. So I completely agree with you, but... I don't think it's enough to just signpost it. I want it to be more meaningful. Yeah. In terms of my views on his starting point, I really like the opening minutes of the film in terms of just showing what Thor's up to right now. You get the quick montage of this is how he became ripped again. He got himself back in shape and now he's a cosmic adventurer with the Guardians and he only seems to get involved in battles when he feels like it. He's not that bothered most of the time. And I quite like, because we always talk about the power levels and the way that they approach power levels and the inconsistencies there. But I like that you have this battle raging around him and Thor isn't bothered because he's in no danger and knows he's in no danger. And then when he gets involved, it's not a problem for him at all because, again, he's just that powerful. The whole point of that opening fight with the Guardians is maybe they're in danger, but he isn't. And so he's just showing off because he's aware of that. That's a good way to use an overpowered character, I think. I'm not sure that he felt like he was in any danger later in the film, but 
at least I believed at that point he was fine with the fact that he's not in danger. That was a clever start, I suppose. And the Guardians, I know there's been some complaints around the fact that they are barely featured, but I was actually okay with that. They're in it for five minutes. We're not seeing much of the Thor Guardians dynamic and they go off and leave him behind. And I quite like the goodbye that he did, even though it was one of those Taika Waititi things of characters just explaining their motivation or explaining the thing they need to deal with. But I think Chris Hemsworth sold it in the way that he performed it. I think his delivery of it made it work. Whereas if it had been someone else, maybe not. The thing is, though, I don't believe that the comedy was ever in doubt. That was good comedy. And as somebody who is really pernickety about power levels, yes, it's nice to see that. It was nice to see his blatant disregard for something that was a bit below him. It was also nice that that also shows off the arrogance of the gods, which is what your main villain is going to challenge. Because you don't even realise that that's on theme at the start if you don't know well, actually, it opens with the God Butcher, I suppose, so you do know. But you're not necessarily looking for it in that detail, that even in his positive moments, a God is showing an arrogance of saying, you're beneath me. I don't even have to treat you, my enemy, with any respect. I can just stand here and monologue and throw my cape. And if my cape happens to hit the king of these people in the face at a moment where diplomacy is going to be important and you're about to destroy the temple, the whole thing says, I'm above you. And it's nice to see that the main character had a reason for the God Butcher to go for him. In the end, that was irrelevant. And at no point, I don't think, did Gore actually come to Thor and say, you're just as bad as the rest of them. Maybe I could spare somebody who was actually fighting for the cause, who actually stood in front of mortals and helped them. Maybe I could change my mind here and you've inspired me to think again because you're not just feeding off them. But even you are behaving badly with an arrogance, so I still want to go for you a bit. And you think, oh yeah, they're setting up all this amazing ideology. There's going to be this philosophy, there's going to be back and forth. Of course, it has to be in the middle of a combat. That's fine. It's Marvel. I don't expect them to sit down over a game of chess. That's not what I'm after. But I would appreciate it if whilst they were fighting, somebody was trying to say, but you're wrong. And then they have to debate it. And the villain realizes they're a villain, blah, blah, blah. You can go into loads of stuff, but no. So yeah, I will agree with you. Awesome comedy felt like it was setting up something that then never appeared. Kat, are you along those lines? Yeah, pretty much. It's interesting in theory. The more I thought about it after I watched the film, that was something that I was quite keen on conceptually. It didn't satisfy at the end of the day. There are some things... The God Butcher introduction was very powerful. It sets up a motivation and all of that. But it just kind of made me go like, okay, so if we think about any of this for too long. With some other stuff that's been introduced in phase four, are we in phase four? We're still in phase, phase four. four. Some of the stuff that's been introduced with the Eternals and going back to Guardians of the Galaxy with the Celestials and Ego and all of that. Okay, where do gods sit on the MCU cosmology at this point? Well, there's a question. <laughs> We have a whole thing about that later, so don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. It just was really distracting, especially towards the stuff with Zeus. So don't get me started on that right now. I'm going to hold it back <laughs> until later, because as a Greek person, Jesus Christ. But a lot of that kind of got in the way for me. And perhaps the one-mindedness of Gore, while compelling, I feel like the ending undermines 
a lot of the motivational stuff that was quite interesting at the beginning. Do you know what I mean? If all it takes is Jane going like, oh yeah, you could just do that. <laughs> you could bring her back. That could be a wish. And he goes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and he just does that. And then he's like, oh, well, I'm going to die, but that's okay. We'll keep her safe, I guess. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, I was like, wait a minute. All of that murder was a, unnecessary, and B, it doesn't satisfy at the end of all of this. And so it just kind of left me feeling very empty and very, okay, none of that built towards itself. It's the whole thing with there needs to be crumbs that we follow so that when the narrative lands, there needs to be a promise, an internal promise that is fulfilled by the end of the story. That's what all storytelling is, really. You set things up, there's an internal promise that the rest of the story serves to fulfill, and then at the end, we expect that to reach its conclusion and be like, yeah, okay, I understand. And I do not understand. <laughs> <laughs> a very mixed emotion, honestly. Sometimes I feel like Taika Waititi doesn't know what film he's trying to make. Or maybe he knows what he's trying to make, but people don't understand. I agree. I think especially in this one, I semi-agree with what Aaron said in his spoiler-free section where he said this is a very Taika Waititi film. It is. It feels like he's trying to take the Mickey out of the superhero genre. But that's also what Ragnarok was. So then he's kind of taking the Mickey out of his own take on the superhero genre. And there's just a few layers too many of ridiculing. And I appreciate Taika's ability to really lay into tropes and your expectations and really subvert them. He's great at that. His other films, the stuff that is well and truly his, like the Jojo Rabbits, the Hunts for the Wilder People, what we do in the shadows, what a brilliant subversion that is of everything you expect of a vampire movie. But it just feels like there's a lot of tonal whiplash, a lot of, and now we're going to laugh at this, that takes away in my opinion, from the source material and from that narrative promise that we're here for in a superhero movie. Yes, you can have it be comedic. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy are among the most successful and loved, I think, universally, Marvel movies, and they're very funny. Therein lies kind of my biggest issue in just how confused Taika Waititi seems about this. It's like, are you tired of this? Then why are you making this movie? Just kind of feels like he's making the statement that, ah, isn't all of this so banal and passe? And haven't you had enough 20-odd films? We're reaching 30 films at this point of all of this. Haven't you had enough? Haha. -ha. But your own work is in this. I just don't understand. I'm going to come back to the tonal whiplash comment you made because I have the same words in my notes, those exact same words. That's probably why we'd be drift compatible oh, if they were made of Jaeger. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that. And I want to discuss the Taika Waititi of it all, first of all, because mm. I haven't seen them myself. It's more what people have told me. But it seems that there's been a shift in the public perception of Taika Waititi over the past couple of years. I think some people seem to think he's getting a bit high on his own supply. Some people think he's become a bit obnoxious in the way that he conducts himself in interviews and things like that. I guess he's maybe buying into the hype that's now surrounding him, possibly since Ragnarok and after Wilder People as well, which had some mainstream acclaim after it did really well in film festivals and things like that. I don't know how true it is. I have seen that video where it's him and Tessa Thompson just crapping on the special effects in this film. It's like, does this scene look real? I found that to be a bit weird. You're promoting your own film and you're insulting the people that worked on it. Yeah. That's not a good look. 
especially when you're trying to say, go watch this film. Look how crap it looks. Mm-hmm. What? What are you telling me here? I get that it's supposed to be a tongue-in-cheek marketing thing, but I think the intending messaging completely misses the mark, and I feel like they should probably apologise for it, especially for the effects houses that worked on this film. Cat, you'll be more dialed into social media than either of us here, just making an assumption on Aaron's part here. Maybe he's a secret doom scroller on Twitter. Who knows? Yeah, carry on. But are you finding that with the Taika Waititi perception, or...? I'm all off base here. I don't think you're wrong. I haven't seen the Tessa Thompson clip, so I can't speak to that. There was one video where it was him and Chris Evans actually doing a lad Bible, true or false, agree or disagree kind of interview. I don't know that it's arrogance or being full of himself or whatever. On the one hand, it's a little bit of that auteur trap where it's we like his films because they're his, because he's the only one who could make this. And he's incredibly successful and, in fact, in the last few years has really taken off. What with the Marvel stuff, what with the Oscar nomination for Jojo Rabbit, what with Our Flag Means Death, which is the new TV show. Pardon my French, he's hot shit (coughs) right now. Whether or not that's getting to his head in a way where he's full of himself, I haven't seen so much to that, but I do think that perhaps there is a little bit of that going on. Certainly in the tongue-in-cheekness of his house style, if you will. How much Taika is too much Taika (laughs) (laughs) is the question, I think, right now. For me, anyway. I considered myself a very big fan. I saw Hunt for the Wilder People at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Not the year we met, but a few years after that. And loved it. And I was really like, here's someone to watch. This guy's great. And then what we do in the shadows is top 10, I think, of films for me. It's just so good. And I rewatch it all the time. So it pains me to say, but if this is where his work is trending, I'm less inclined to blindly support and love his stuff. You know me and auteur things. I don't believe in blindly loving somebody's work. Every film should stand on its own two feet. And directors are hit or miss. I love Christopher Nolan, but sometimes... I don't like Christopher Nolan's work. I think that's okay. So maybe he's kind of losing touch. Maybe he needs to calm down. Take it down a little bit. So I promised I would come back to it. The tonal whiplash comment. One of my criticisms of this film is the shift in tone. And sometimes it happens within the same scene. And a great example is in the first, what, 10 minutes. Because you start off with the gore losing his daughter, starting his campaign of murder against the gods moment. Then you cut to... A funny romp with Thor and the Guardians, and then it actually transitions within the scene itself to Jane getting a MRI. So in those ten minutes, you've got these three vastly different things that the film is trying to encourage you to feel. And throughout, I felt myself wondering what the film wants me to feel about something. I think my brain just resolved it by I'm just going to laugh whenever something happens that I find funny. I will just laugh. And that got me through it. But there were times where I was getting through it and I was thinking, am I supposed to be upset about this? Because I'm not quite there. You're not giving this moment enough time to breathe. So that's why tonal whiplash is in my notes. I think it's a problem throughout, as in within a scene, you cut from something deathly serious to let's make it funny. And I feel like the MCU does that a lot anyway with have a really tense moment and undercut it with a joke. You've got that throughout. A couple of pointed examples I can think of is in Doctor Strange, you get that moment where he becomes Doctor Strange. He puts the cloak on, he looks in the mirror and he's resolved to be who he is and then the cloak just pokes him in the ear. Like, you've just ruined it. Well done. 
that was actually really cool and you've ruined it. And then another one's in Spider-Man No Way Home where Peter and MJ are having a video call and they have a really intense emotional conversation and then Happy interrupts them. Mm -hmm. You've just killed that moment. Well done. I was really into this year and you didn't have the confidence to follow through with this moment and let the emotion of it sink in so you've just undercut it with the joke. So I don't think that's necessarily just a Taika Waititi problem. I think that's been throughout in the MCU. I don't think they've ever gotten rid of that as such. Mm. And I know some people have less of a problem with it than I do but I constantly find myself rubbing up against it and it's almost like you could do a fan edit of these films and all you do is you cut the last five seconds of a scene sometimes and it feels completely different. Do you know, this is the reason that I stopped watching a lot of stuff, this sort of sense of humour to it. It's obviously a bit more extreme for you here, but what you've just described is how I viewed everything that came from what I've assumed was Buffy as the starting point, because I always Mm -hmm. referred to this as the Joss Whedon effect. Mm -hmm. And that might be unfair, but it was what caused people to love his work when it first came out. It drove me up the freaking wall i just couldn't bear it i would never say that buffy was bad i just couldn't get on with it but i think it came at a time when everything was leaning so far the other way where they committed to the moment for like 15 seconds and it became painful so there's obviously a balance that we like but if i'm now hearing you say this then to me it's saying this has gone on to an extreme i just didn't believe possible it stops me watching things like shield and some of the DC shows, although I'll admit they might not do it that far, that is the style of humor that started with Buffy and spread throughout. Geek humor loves that stuff. But yeah, if it's gone that far, that its own audience is saying, no, you've taken that too far. If it's really gone to that extreme, that's quite disturbing for me to hear. It's not a deal breaker for me at this point. I'm still going to watch this stuff. But even when I'm watching an emotional moment and I'm getting myself wrapped up in it, I'm waiting for that point actually sometimes i'm sitting there being what joke are we going to get interrupting this in five seconds we can't let the audience think about something serious for a minute welcome to my world of hate i've been suffering with this (laughs) by the way since buffy how long is that three decades (laughs) this has been weighing on my shoulders name my very soul for three decades and now i've got recruit i'm happy (laughs) i'm not happy about the film but i'm happy to have a recruit you're happy to drag us down with you (laughs) absolutely come to the dark side (laughs) This is Aaron's God-butchering hell, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, what a hill to be on. I don't disagree, by the way. It's the reason I don't like Tony Stark as a character. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but he grates on me so much because everything is a joke. Everything is ha-ha. And I suppose it's a coping mechanism for people who go through some really difficult things. So I don't hate it like outright but i don't like that it's all the time it's everything oh my god stop the quips i swear to god especially after joss whedon i think gave his flavor to the mcu with the first avengers movie and that kind of sealed the deal tonally i think for a lot of marvel things but i will agree with aaron that it permeates the genre a lot of cw shows do this have always done this a lot of WB stuff back in the day. I too find myself waiting for that. There's the little morsel of emotional resonance and there's the joke. Or perhaps they get interrupted or something. So perhaps it's not always funny, haha, but we can't sit with something for too long. So we got to move on to the next thing. And that joke perhaps is preparing us for the next scene, which is going to have quite a shift in tone. And so in order to ready us for that, we have to curb the emotional stuff we can't be feeling things 
You're probably going to laugh at this, but the earliest example I can think of, and this is just coming to my head, this predates Buffy. It's in the first Casper movie. Mm. And I don't know if either of you remember it, maybe as well as I do, and I'm surprised I remember it this well, but I'm going to explain it. It's the scene at the end where he gets resurrected for a few minutes. That's the wish he gets granted or something. And he goes to dance with Christina Ricci's character. Is it her that's the young girl in that? Yeah. So he dances with her and then they float and everything. And it's all this lovely romantic moment. Then he becomes a ghost again. And he just turns around and there's people looking at them and he just goes, boo. And everyone runs away. It reminds me of that. And for some reason, I have this lingering memory of being in the cinema when I was younger, watching the film when it first came out. And I remember feeling quite upset in that moment for some reason. I don't know why I remember this. It's crazy. And then I remember being glad that there was a laugh at the end of it because, I don't know, people didn't get to see me cry or something. Maybe that's the origin. Yeah, maybe. I didn't recall this, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, oh, it's still a kid's film, so we can't have this be sad. We got to end it on a positive note. Here's a joke. I think that happens quite a lot of things. You think that someone's going to die and then they don't and then they have a laugh about it. Yeah, maybe the genesis is in kid stuff and well there's a lot of kidnapped children and things in this film so there's probably a more younger skewing angle to it i would think than some of the other ones maybe. younger than your usual marvel audience which often includes kids of 12 and under i don't know i think it's about the same i saw it as more of a parental thing than the kids thing actually the kids mm. are in it for the parents not to bring in more kids yeah all right let's get to jane then we'll pick up with thor here and there well that's the other thor she is a thor in this film so following the comic book story where she's dying of cancer and being Thor is detrimental to her recovering from that cancer because every time she wields a hammer it undoes any of the treatment that she's undergoing which is in this film but again not hugely covered which is weird considering how important it ends up becoming at the end so it's in there but it's not in there which I suppose you can say about a lot of things I liked what they did with Jane by and large I think Natalie Portman settled into the hero role brilliantly I quite liked the recurring gag of her finding her catchphrase and then not telling you what her catchphrase was, I thought was a nice touch because it had been built up to the point where, what are we going to accept now? Nothing will be good enough considering all this hype. So I liked what they did with Jane by and large. It was good to see Natalie Portman back. They obviously gave her something worth returning for. I do feel like she's had more substantial work here than she did in some previous appearances. So I was happy overall with what they did with her cat. What did you think of Jane? In this. I think by and large, I enjoyed the concept. So the source material stuff, the Mighty Thor storyline, the tagline thing, I think got a little tired and it fed into the whole taking the Mickey out of superhero stuff. I think a little too much. We had a few too many of those, in my opinion. I don't know that this version of Jane was very congruent with the Jane of the first Thor movie, who is really the important source for this character. The Dark World was, as we all know, a little tertiary. The scientist who was so amazed by all this science is magic, and it didn't seem like it was the same character. And also, side note, I don't really like what they did with the montage of their relationship, or the high-speed careening towards breakup montage. I don't think that that is congruent with what we've had of them previously. That annoyed me because I found myself wondering, okay, when does this happen? What films is this between? Absolutely correct. Yes, I came out of the cinema being like, okay, so in the timeline that we know, where does this fit? And my fiance was like, oh, it's the bit in between the dark world. And then the next time we see Thor where he's like, oh, she broke up with me. Age of Ultron will be in there somewhere. I guess it's the bit where 
Thor is looking for the Infinity Stones, where he's going around searching. And that is the bit where he was distant and growing apart and not around very much. And that sort of thing. But I struggled to see him living on Earth part-time, that being his thing, during this time. It's not even hinted at in the rest of the films at all. You'd think if they're going around restaurants on dates and stuff, that there would be more of a Thor presence on Earth, generally. It raises the question of, so where was Thor when blank? (laughs) He's just here for Jane, and then he never touches base with any of the other Avengers while he's off looking for Infinity Stone. It just doesn't fit. It serves the comedic bit of, and here's how we reach this point, and here's why they each are the one who got away to the other person. The big love that they wish they could hold on to, but they didn't. They got too scared, and that's why they drove each other away. It's such a reductive read of relationships in general, and B, this relationship. This particular pair, I just don't see this working. And because of that tonal shift, this is actually quite a serious moment, but we're reducing it to laughs. And because also the romance getting together of the first Thor movie is really special to me. It was just, oh man, this is what we're Reducing them to? Cool. Nice. Thanks. Oh, they wanted to have children, but then they didn't. Ha ha. Ah, so basic. It's just basic. <laughs> well, one thing that was certainly missing from that, because it was just a montage, so you didn't really get any texture to the relationship anyway, but there's one glaring thing between them that could have driven them apart, and it is the I will outlive you aspect of it, from Thor's point of view. Because yeah. he's going to live, we don't know how much longer, thousands of years, we presume. It mentions he's what... 1500 years old or something in Infinity War. So he's probably got a few thousand years left. He's probably in his Asgardian equivalent, he's 30s maybe. Who knows? I don't know how long Asgardians are supposed to live. Don't know how long Odin was, but doesn't matter. But then you have the, the whole cancer thing that can ground the whole notion of Thor will outlive her. Because we can't understand the whole notion of having a partner that will outlive us by thousands of years. But you can understand the fact that an illness will take a partner from someone. So... Yeah. They could have done something with that, but didn't. I really liked the scene where Thor sat down with her and said, you have to leave Mjolnir alone because I want you to stick around and I'm not willing to pay that price, etc., etc. I really liked that scene. and That's a whole character plot that could have really been something. Instead, it's reduced to, we'll have that one serious scene. We're going to have some laughs in a minute. Don't worry about it. Aaron, what do you think of Jane and her usage? I'm going to be saying similar things to you guys. The problem was, for me, it was the same as the other stuff. It was... Here's some interesting things that could have been true, but we won't commit to them because we don't really have the time in the plot to do it. So we'll waste time with things like, I want a catchphrase because all superheroes do. Something just so banal. And it ends in nothing. You're right, they can't give you a catchphrase at the end because it wouldn't be good. But given that even the thing she says when she smites the villain at the end is just a bit nothing. I am mighty Thor. Yeah, okay, well, that's your name from the comics, but it's not really that great to say in the middle of a great victory. So anything that could have been good wasn't giving any time, but it couldn't be because it's a comedy. I'm going to come back to that. Taika didn't want to create that, so it wasn't there. So I will say I'm the same as you. I switched off from it. I was like, oh, yeah, she's probably going to die. Yeah, that's a shame. I would not want to die. I wouldn't want to be in her position. Intellectually speaking, I have to admit, that's a bit nasty. That would suck. But I'm, I'm not involved because you're telling me don't worry about it. It'll probably be fine. And 
it just kind of takes over. But I have been awakened to something here that I didn't think about. I just feel like Cat's opened the door to another room of hate for me, which I'd not thought about oh, no. until now. <laughs> oh, no. The thing is, this film told me not to worry about it and not to think, so I didn't. It just said, don't worry about it. So I wandered off, and now we're coming here doing our chat and thinking, oh my god, this film did something. Yes, if I'd have noticed, I would have hated that too. Because what you described here, Kat, for Thor is exactly how I felt really robbed by Multiverse of Madness. Because in that, I felt exactly the same thing. I'm pretty sure we had the same conversation where I said, What they had was an idea for a film, but in order to create it, they had to start the character from just a normal random human emotion that they've got a story for and completely forget any character development that Doctor Strange has been through to get to this point. It's not that they got rid of or changed the canon on Doctor Strange's previous existence. They didn't rewrite it. They just completely ignored it and did things that were contrary to it. So I'm now even more disturbed by this film. I can only say the reason I didn't see that with Thor is because either I'm A, not smart enough, or B, it's true that they told me not to care, so I didn't. Oh, that's a room of hate to be in, by the way. I have to (laughs) get up and walk around the flat. Is this podcast just your supervillain origin story? I think it is. Yeah, (laughs) I want to be good, but you're just pulling me away. You can listen to a 200 odd episode podcast series on how Aaron becomes a supervillain that takes over the world. Oh God, that's not good. We just need for you to find your magic artifact that gives you the power, and then we're off to the races. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, I'll take inspiration from whatever you give me, and that'll be the cause that I lose myself trying to correct. It'll be something to do with the plot force. I need to bring down the plot force because I absolutely <laughs> despise it with a passion. <laughs> Yeah. So Jane's death then, let's talk about that now. She ends up in Valhalla, which we'll cover more in the let's unpack the gods of the MCU question. So she goes to Valhalla and it's established earlier in the film that in order to get into Valhalla, it's a really simple bit of criteria. You have to die in the battle. You can't survive the battle and then die of your wounds. You have to die in the battle. And then I was thinking about it after Jane fizzles off and, and ends up there and I was she died after the battle but then she was always in a battle she was in a battle with cancer I find that quite interesting I don't know that that counts well it seems to it very much doesn't from a viking perspective exactly no. I don't think that that counts I think the whole bit where they're inside the um, eternity little pocket I think that's an extended bit of the battle because that moment kind of exists out of time whoever's ticking things off on that checklist this is still in the battle <laughs> if they'd done something with it, again, do something with it. But that's kind of poetic, isn't it? She was in a battle the whole time. Yeah, it could be. But strictly speaking, I don't think it counts. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Something I didn't touch on was I kind of loved her relationship with Mjolnir and the way that Mjolnir changes and is able to reassemble and all of that. I thought that was super cool. But again, as with most things in this film, not utilized to its full potential. I loved the love triangle, the Thor Mjolnir Stormbreaker love triangle. I thought it was really good. <laughs> when he was trying to summon Mjolnir and then Stormbreaker just sneaks in. It's like, hello? <laughs> Stormbreaker, I was just calling you. Excuse me? <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen any evidence that the weapons are sentient before this, but 
Sure, I'm willing to accept it. That was always my headcanon, to be honest. That was always my headcanon. There was a fanfic in my head for years where Mjolnir is sentient. It was from the bit where Mjolnir is stuck on the ground and earth during the first Thor movie. And what would be going through the mind of Mjolnir while Thor is not worthy to pick it up and that sort of thing. That was always kind of my headcanon. So to see this, I was like, ah, somebody else thought of this. That's cool. The comics go back and forth on it as well. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. But I do think, as with a lot of jokes in this movie, it's overplayed. I think it's one or two too many of, and Stormbreaker's jealous, and suddenly it won't work, or it won't do the thing, or it's not listening to Thor, because it's like, me, I'm mad at you because you like your ex-hammer more than me. Okay, my god, we get it. <laughs> Biggest peeve about this movie is the overplaying of jokes that are successful. I was okay with it because a lot of Chris Hemsworth's delivery really helped with it. He is really good. He's so good. He's so funny. But it's too much. It's a bit where he's like, I'm going off to get the kids. And then he leaves and then you see him crashing down out the window and he's like, Stormbreaker, what are you doing? Is this about Mjolnir? This oafishness, this childishness that Chris Hemsworth plays so well. I think he's great at that. And them finding how funny he was in Ragnarok was a real revelation. But I also yeah. feel like the Russos handled him probably with a bit more nuance than Taika Waititi did, because he's still funny, but also they managed to get into the tragedy of him as well. Whereas yeah. I don't think Taika Waititi necessarily does. But that's not his focus. That's not what he wants to do, I suppose. I do agree that there's a big sense of tragedy about Thor throughout. His story is always met with grand-scale impossibilities and cosmic-scale questions. In the first film, the Shakespearean question of the two brothers and the terrible father who's very bad at being a parent and what all of that does to their family and by consequence to the several realms that they're technically sworn to protect and that's the stuff that i'm personally here for because i am the fantasy literature nerd this is my stuff this is for me i appreciate the comedy and I like the balance that the big projects that the Russos directed, the Avengers movies, Endgame, Infinity War, his stuff there was the right amount. But perhaps it's going back to what Aaron said about in small doses, the flavor rather than the main course, if you will, that I think perhaps is the ticket. I think that's the right balance. And too much of all of this, <laughs> and especially too much of the comedic aspect of his grandeur, because he is a larger-than-life character. How much is too much? And yeah. I think, for me, this one absolutely tips off the scale. This film sort of trivialises his tragedy as well with Korg's narration. He lost his brother, and then his brother again, and his mother, and that guy, and whoever that is. Yeah. And I don't know who this is either. This list of, yeah, a lot of people have died in Thor's past, and we're just going to breeze past it. And Ragnarok mm -hmm. does that as well, where it kills off the Warriors 3. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> you can probably listen to Kat complain about this in the Ragnarok podcast. Probably. I actually don't remember. But Neither yes, do I. I do think that the way it's handled in this one, just going back to, oh, yeah, and whoever this guy was, they were his best friends for a thousand years. How dare you? Like, I know you're his new rock friend and whatever, and I guess you don't care, but Thor cares. Again, to echo what Aaron said earlier about maybe it would have 
clicked if all of this was from Quark's perspective. And of course he doesn't care and everything's a joke because he's just new and he's around and he's a rock. <laughs> he doesn't give a crap. Not in the same way. It's not significant. These people meant nothing to him. He never knew them. I understand we don't want to be sitting here crying about, God, it's not Falstaff. Falstaff. Falstaff and the other two. Falstaff, who is based on Falstaff from actual Shakespeare. We don't want to dwell on the tragedy of how swiftly and tragically he died because this isn't that kind of movie but do we need to rub it in yeah just don't mention it yeah yeah my views on korg in this film i liked him in ragnarok and then he appears in endgame and he's only in what one scene really so it doesn't really matter as such but korg is like that friend that a friend of yours has that nobody likes but they keep coming along anyway that's what I feel about Korg in He's this always film. part of the group for some yeah, reason. Yeah. Why is this guy here? <laughs> Thor obviously likes him, but we really don't. I get that impression. He's always there. And he's a bit like Nick Frost's character in Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. He's Simon Pegg's friend, so he's here, but we really can't stand him. And you just have to tolerate him. <laughs> I don't think anybody has a strong negative reaction to Korg. I don't think anybody has a strong reaction to him one way or another, but... That's the vibe I'm getting from him. And maybe that's part of that people are getting fed up of Taika Waititi thing because he voices him. Maybe that's creeping in there, that meta commentary almost. Maybe. That was just the vibe I got from him in this film. He's just there. There's nothing to do with you. Go away. Go stand over there. We're not interested in your opinion on this, whatever this thing is we're talking about. Maybe that's harsh. Maybe it's not. Don't know. Listeners, if you agree, let us know. So Mjolnir being reforged seems like Thor should have known that that was a possibility, but whatever. I liked the setup of that. Thor saying to Mjolnir, I want you to promise to protect Jane. And then you see the symbol light up. That explains how she became worthy of it. And then they explained what worthiness actually is for the first time. The whole recognising to help people in need. That's what worthiness apparently is, according to Mjolnir. That was a nice little touch, because that tracks with everything that we've seen of it. That explains why Steve can lift it. Yeah. And I guess it doesn't kill him, because... He's the super soldier and Jane isn't. I'm guessing he's better equipped. He only holds it for a minute, whereas for her it was prolonged exposure. And it was also kind of fueling her body because she was super weak and it was giving her the strength that she needed to walk and run around and do all these things. Whereas Steve, I think, just held it and threw it the once. Yeah, he was doing all these lightning tricks with it as well, so... He did a few things. Well, yeah, but in one battle, though. Yeah. To me, that feels quite brief in comparison. And it does track with what's been mentioned about the weapons before, because Thor mentions in Infinity War about going to make Stormbreaker when the Guardians say, should we all have a weapon like that? And he says, well, it would destroy your mind and descend you into madness or something like that. So you have to be made of sterner stuff in order to wield these things long term or even short term, I guess. Well, yeah, a little bit of continuity there in a way, but you have to sort of be looking for it rather than it being explicit about it, which I'm okay with, actually. The fact that this tracks with something that I noticed before makes me feel clever because I noticed it. Let's move on to Valkyrie then. I feel like she was really sidelined in this film. I was looking forward to getting to see a lot more of her. She could have been doing a lot of what Jane did. It's almost like they split the character in two and Jane does some of it or most of it and Valkyrie's still kind of there. You see her not enjoying being king. And I theorised on a news podcast that she was attending boring meetings about what days to take out the different colour bins. And that seems exactly what she's doing at the start of the film. So I feel validated in that. I predicted that. Kat, what did you think of Valkyrie in this film, the use of Val? Val. That ought not to be her name. That's her title. It's Brunhilde, I think it's supposed to be. Oh, okay, right. I don't like that we call her Valkyrie. I guess she's the last one, but that's not her name. 
Maybe she's decided to own it. Who knows? Maybe Doesn't not. tell you. I don't know that we spend any amount of time one way or the other. I liked where they took her character. Obviously, she only appeared in Ragnarok, so this is a natural progression and with Waititi at the helm. Endgame as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the first time that we saw her and spent any length of time with her was in Ragnarok, which is also a Waititi film. So it makes sense that he develops her character in the linear way that makes sense. I'm glad that she's not entirely an alcoholic basket case um, and that she seems to have found some satisfaction in leading her community on and all of that. I really appreciated the fact that the gayness of it all was acknowledged. Yes, good. Because obviously we knew that the character is gay or at the very least bi because the blonde lady in her flashback was her lover. I think we knew this from the comics maybe, but it was only implied in that film, whereas in this one, it's made very clear. I was very happy with that. But she's fine as a sidekick. I enjoyed the amount of her that we got and her coming into her own. But I don't know how she plays with the Jane and Thor of it all. Not even in a third wheel kind of way. There are moments where she and Jane are becoming friends and there's a camaraderie there. And I wanted more of that, which we didn't get. And perhaps not enough of the banter between her and Thor that we got in Ragnarok. Perhaps because they made up and they're pals now and they don't try to get under each other's skin so much. But no, I mostly really enjoyed her stuff. She was one of the parts of the film that worked the best. Well, I did have questions for you specifically about the gayness of it all, because I know you're looking for it in everything we watch. Yes, I am a queer and I'm always looking for the queer. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of it in this. The perhaps implied, not even implied. Oh God, I forgot what Korg's race is called, if we even Cronin's. have Ronans, thank you. The fact that they're all male and I guess they just have babies while sitting over a volcano thing. It's... <laughs> Bonkers, hilarious, and kind of cute. But he talks about his mother in Ragnarok, doesn't he? No one came in my revolution except for my mother and her boyfriend, and I hate him. Oh, okay, well, fair enough. In that case, he's gay then, and that's fine. That was cute. I thought that was adorable. I feel like Waititi has an LGBT furthering agenda, which I am very pleased with. Our flag means death is gay as all hell. Gay pirates. Chef's kiss. Amazing. <laughs> so yeah, happy with that. The earliest chat about this film suggested that Valkyrie's arc in it was going to be trying to find her queen to her king. Mm. And that's not what happens in this at all. I don't know if they ever oh, filmed God. it or if it ever made it out of this initial ideas phase or whatever. I think that was what fans wanted. Tessa Thompson said that at some point, that that was what mm. oh, okay. the film was going to be about, at least for her, that was going to be part of the film. And it's just not in there. But I quite liked her little monologue where she talked about, I'm just figuring myself out. I don't really want a relationship and all that stuff. Yeah, I've lost a lot and I just want to recalibrate a bit. Yeah, that's completely valid. And the thing is, you'll be far more of an authority on this than I am. It was, again, something Tessa Thompson said about the fact that she's not looking for a relationship doesn't make her any less of a queer character because... Oh, for sure. Why do the gay characters all have to be looking for love? Can't they just yeah. be gay and not looking for love? That's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You get straight characters that aren't looking for a relationship, particularly in Marvel movies. The romance mm -hmm. angle is fallen off the wayside quite a lot in, in a lot of these films. So to me, it feels like yeah. the same thing. And I'm not watching Valkyrie saying, oh, I hope she gets a girlfriend this time. It's just that that's the surefire telegraphed way of 
representation. You absolutely can have a gay or queer character not looking for a relationship. That's entirely valid and a part of life for all people, not just straight people. It's just part of life. But in terms of seeing that on screen is then definitely confirmation of representation, which media struggles with, and especially big-time Disney Marvel media struggles with the most. So having them have that storyline is not necessarily because that's what all gay people do, because that way we can see the queerness on screen, and that's what we're lacking. That being said, this is entirely a valid narrative for her, and... We had confirmation of the gayness for her, at least in dialogue, and so I'm happy with that, at least. Low bar. <laughs> but that's okay. I'll take it. I'll take anything. And yet that bit where she doesn't kiss the hand of the woman in Zussie's court, does she? But there's a glimmer of attraction there. There's a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a moment. Yeah, I couldn't remember whether she actually kissed the hand or not. I think she holds her hand and then heroically leaves. I don't remember. I have blacked most of that scene out because I hated it so much. Well, we're going to have to revisit it. (laughs) Aaron, what were your thoughts on the use of Valkyrie in this film? Not too much more than what you've already said. I do think that films that have to come from the comics suffer a problem throughout the whole genre. Certainly the MCU, I don't think there's something that's in DC as well, but when you've set up this back history on the MCU, the logical thing to do would be to pursue it in the direction that it wants to go by itself. But what we seem to want from our films, or the fan base is calling for the films, is I want to see my favourite comic storyline on screen. And the problem is those storylines have evolved in some cases over decades and through multiple universes and different writers who have just said, screw it, I'm doing what I want, which in a comic book, you can just say, well, it's a different anthology, so get over it or don't buy me and that's fine. But we're watching an MCU that is continuous and it is continuous without any possibility of time jumps or multiple universes, unless that's part of the story. So we can't just jump between these things. So somebody said, I'm pretty sure, wouldn't Gore the God Butcher be just an amazing story for us to do with Thor? And the answer to that is, oh, hell yes. But not for this Thor at this point with that director because of these storylines. And it just becomes really hard to crowbar it in. And I suppose that it's made even worse when somebody says, this is what we're going to do, find me a director. Then the director turns up and says, right, well, my style is this. Can we make that work? And you're thinking, well, no. Obviously, the answer is yes, because we have to, because you're going to pull in millions of dollars. But the actual answer is no. And you do wonder sometimes if the writers are going, are you freaking kidding me? I have to do what now? What do you expect me to do with that? And they come up with some stuff, but you do wonder it's sort of doomed because of this. And Listening to you and Kat describe Valkyrie, I'm thinking, I wonder if that's because she had no place in that mix. She has a place in her own storyline. She got there and she could take that logically on. But if you then say, yeah, that's great and all, but we need to be God the God Butcher and we need to go down Mighty Thor and we need to do this and we need to do that. All of a sudden, anything that could have been given to well, now I don't know what to call her, Valkyrie, Brumhilda, anything that could go to this character is just lost. It's not possible to get it in. She's not going to get the screen time. And even if she could, 
she's a sidekick, as you've described her, and even if she wasn't, the story is going to be so incongruous to everything else that has to happen. It just feels like certain characters are just doomed. Now, I think it's made worse by Doctor Strange and Thor, where people come along and say, it's my story and I want to write what I want because I think this is going to be awesome. What about the character's back history? Yeah, but that doesn't fit with what I want. And the plot needs it, darling. And anybody that says the plot needs it, darling, should just be burnt alive because it's just not a good excuse for bad writing. So I'm in the dark room here now, just listening to the sound of my own hate boiling through my veins. But it just feels like it's a poor start that dooms certain characters. So I don't think she suffered alone. Thor and, and Mighty Thor suffered as well. But I don't see how she could have had a good film other than just being a sidekick to do funny and funky things. And I'm glad that she's achieved a sort of character consistency. And the thing that made her important to the fan base is still represented and seen. But nonetheless, it seems like she was a bit robbed, even so. Mm. Well, yeah, there was a few things in there that she didn't get to do. She has a friendship with Jane that's already in existence. By the time Thor gets there, we don't see it. And... She has the thoughts for Jane as well, because the I'm on Team Jane line. Mm -hmm. And then that's really it. That one scene that Natalie Portman and Tessa Thompson get together, where they're friends, that's really good. I think the actors really sell it, but it only made me yearn to see it actually played out. I wanted to see more of it. And then even when they go on the adventure, it's more about how they bounce off Thor. So they're a trio, in effect, or a quad, because Korg is there just chiming in every few seconds. Again, he's the friend that's, why is he here? Because Thor likes him, just they humour him, whatever. He'll shut up eventually, maybe. But when they're all together, it's about the three of them and it's about how they relate to Thor rather than how they relate to each other. So you have this engaging friendship that you just never really get to see other than one scene. Well, if it wasn't being forced into Gore the God Butcher, they could have had a film about the three of them. They could have had a film whereby they're all trying to solve a personal problem and these things are going to be solved as they go on an adventure. But... I suspect yeah. it's not good enough to go on an adventure these days and have a development, have an emotional storyline, because you've got to get the main villain in. You've got to get this story in. So I don't think that any of that was inaccessible, but in such a film, there was no place for it. And even Gore the God Butcher doesn't get any development or screen time enough to do anything. I'd have to come back to him to say what I think on that. But if even your main villain's not going to get enough time to do some good stuff then your sidekicks there's just no way let's move on to the villain of the piece then we have touched on him but we haven't really covered him much like the film itself i suppose we have gore the god butcher played by christian bale it's a bit of a surprising role for him in the sense that he tends to pick roles where he actually has stuff to do not that he doesn't have anything to do but he could have more to do i think i love the opening scene where he sees his god this being that he's worshipped his whole life just laughing at him and his reaction to that is, I am going to kill this god and every other god because they're all frauds. There's a lot of rhyming in what I've just said there. Really good. Well done me. Great motivation. And I think the film does a good job of supporting that motivation by the other gods that you see. You don't see a lot of them. I think there was a lot of god butchering cut. There wasn't any god butchering really other than that initial one. So Aaron, what did you think of Gore and the way he was introduced and the way he developed, if he developed at all, perhaps? I think I will summarize every part of it by I didn't see enough of it. The introduction was good, but it's a long way to go for me from being angry at your God to saying, right, I'm getting rid of all of them. 
because I assume there's a history there. I've been let down here. I've been let down before. I've been let down somewhere else. I get that the entire planet was let down, but by this one god. Was there a pantheon? Did they all let them down over time? And has he heard stories across the space lanes and from traders that tell him, oh yeah, that happened on this other planet. These other gods were exactly the same. They just let it go when they got bored. So it's a nice little teaser, but seeing somebody go to the point where they're going to have an effect on the universe that is not quite the same as Thanos, but it's up there. If you go around getting rid of all the gods across the whole universe, that is going to have a massive effect on the religious people that are in that universe. So hinted at, teased, nice little opener. Definitely wanted to see more of that. And then it carries on. You've got somebody like Christian Bale, who will very much rebuild himself from the ground up for the part that you give him. He is prepared to lose all his weight. He is prepared to build up infinite muscle. He is prepared to do whatever it takes to properly give you your character. And even though I haven't really seen much from the actual comics, all I've seen is what's been shown on YouTube. There's definitely a physicality to the character that I've seen drawn And there's definitely a complete belief system there from somebody who has, well, lost their original belief system and rebuilt a new ideology and is prepared to crusade that across the universe. So I think Christian Bale is the perfect person to pay Gore the God Butcher or the Gore the God Butcher that I bet he was promised and that I felt we were promised. They should never have put Christian Bale in a Taika Waititi film. That just doesn't work. They needed to put him in a different film that was prepared to go really nasty with it. Marvel doesn't want to go nasty, but how can you do Gore the God Butcher without going nasty, really? Well, i tell you how you do it. You turn him into a pantomime villain, because he's reduced at one point to getting in a wooden cage with a bunch of kids and trying to scare them. He's not even the child catcher. He's a lost clown that is having to scare children because that's all he's got left in life. In theory, he's trying to persuade these kids that all gods are bad. And, oh, by the way, these children, oh, some of them are gods as well, aren't they? Well, it's starting to get a bit complicated. But that complication never comes up. He just tries to say to them, gods are bad. And even the kids themselves, hang on a minute, was my dad a god? I've got these eyes from somewhere. Wait a minute, what, what are you saying here? No, just put all that aside. I'm going to scare you with funny shapes and silly voices. I didn't want to see Gore the God Butcher as a clown. Again, not that I really know much about this character because I don't read the comics, but everything just seemed wrong and out of place and couldn't go anywhere. So that's such a massive shame to get an actor who was prepared to commit that much. So a character that needs to be committed to that much, I think, and then just turn him into a silly villain that could have been put on strings and played on stage. So I think what we were given showed that there was promise there for a really good character, but I think that actor was massively wasted. The opening scene teased something that didn't really come. And we've already said the ending. There's a great idea there. But you've got to earn it, you've got to build up to it, you've got to build the character for the villain, you've got to understand him, you've got to get on his side. And it's just like, well, if we just skip all that, you know what we mean, don't you? You know he's a bad guy, you know he's awful, you know he wants to kill the universe. If we just give you that in a small wee package at the start, you can kind of take the rest on yourself, can't you? Fair enough, I suppose. But what are you going to offer me? Well, we'll just make you laugh a lot. Fair enough, whatever. That's sort of where I ended up. I felt 
afterwards that I should have been completely robbed, but the film told me it wasn't going to take it seriously. So it was sit back and enjoy the jokes. But again, it's one of those things when you sit down and start talking about it, you think, oh, I should have been a lot more outraged than I was. Maybe I'll just get to that now. I feel like they cut a lot of corners with the sword corrupted him explanation, which I usually find pretty boring when it comes to villain motivations. They were being corrupted by a thing that they were holding or thing that they were wielding. I think maybe the sword encouraging them Mm. is one thing, but the sword corrupting him completely because when he picks it up, there's the dialogue you hear about the go find eternity, it'll grant your wish or whatever. The sword puts an idea in his head. But yeah, you really needed to see the transition from I hate my god to I hate all gods and that's just not there. And weirdly, his campaign happens really quickly. I haven't read the Gore Butcher arc in the comics either, but I wondered if it was going to be this campaign that lasted maybe centuries where he was going around and just murdering gods for centuries. But it all seemed to be, we're getting all these distress calls right now. It seems to be the gods are being butchered in quick succession. So did he only become the god butcher like 10 minutes ago, relatively speaking? Well, this is the problem I think we've mentioned on as well. The idea of having to skip over what's been done before because it doesn't fit with what you want to do. So the director comes along and says, right, I want to tell this funny comic story with loads of jokes and weird angles and kazoos and shiny lights. And that's fine. Brilliant. And then someone tries to say, hang on a minute, we did some setup for this in Moon Knight. Can you work that in? Nah, can we just say that's been done? And I just do my thing. Fine, whatever. We've done this setup elsewhere. Can you work that in? Well, I kind of don't want to because I've got another joke I'd like to get in. Oh, fine. So I think there probably should have been a long time being set up. Come back to Moon Knight, whereby some of the Egyptian gods are strangely no longer there anymore, and nobody wants to talk about it. And even the gods are afraid to talk about it. Why would gods be afraid to talk about their numbers vanishing? That sounds a bit more serious than what's going on here. i got a bit of a problem with this god who's doing horrible things to just humans on Earth. This sounds even bigger than that. Are you telling me there's another Thanos out there? Oh, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? Oh, do I have to? Can't just do another kazoo joke. Once you've got yourself into that pattern of being able to ignore everything that came before, well, then all that good stuff is lost. Because I think that being corrupted by the sword should have been a massive point. That should have been us seeing Christian Bale on screen. He could have even monologued to the sword. He's good enough to do that. That would have worked. And it would be this constant plague on his thoughts. I kind of don't want to kill this god because this god looks like a child. You giving up now? Think of your daughter. You can't quit at this point. Commit to it, man. And there's this sword telling him to get even worse and eventually starts to believe. There's a whole arc there that you can go on, but there's no way that fits in a comedy. Good god, no. Not in a normal comedy, let alone a Taika Waititi comedy. And there is a connection that could be drawn between Jane and Gore as well because they are both wielding these mystical artifacts that are destroying them in some way. And their choices are different because Jane chooses to use that connection in a more positive way, where Gore is a more destructive way. Mm. And it's there in the subtext, but it's not covered in any way because there is the bit where Gore mentions to Jane, we're both dying or something Mm. like that. He says something along those lines. So he recognises that there's a similarity there. Mm. And it's almost like he tries to drag her down with him because of that similarity. But again, that could have been a a really profound moment for Jane to be the anti-Gore in a way. Yeah, giving her a bit more use than, I'm going to copy Thor and do some Thor things and I'm going to do it better than you. And I'm going to get a catchphrase and that'll be a bit naff. That would have given us something to actually do. I do wonder what Natalie Portman was promised. I do wonder what Christian Bale was promised. I don't honestly believe either of them 
received that unless they were told would you want to come on and do a silly comedy i'm sure they both would have been a bit oh really is that it you want to come and do a silly comedy and get paid a bucket full of money well there is always the money <laughs> yes there's always that Christian Bale will need it for all those medical bills later in life because of all these body changes over oh, a short probably. periods of time. Oof, yeah. But can you imagine what he would have been like if they'd have really committed to a really horrendous score the Golden Bridge? How amazing would that character have been? Oh, I don't disagree, yeah. 100%. That's my entire beef with all of this. I watched a great video summarizing both the God Butcher run and the Mighty Thor one that the Jane stuff is based on. It's by Comic Tropes on YouTube. His name is Chris. He's great. He does a lot of videos on comics history and artists and spotlights and things like that. And so the writer whose comics this is based on, Jason Aaron, his surname is Aaron. Aaron. Mm -hmm. It was you. You did this. (laughs) The stuff about gore should have been much darker. It is in the comics. The comic run that that story is in is a very interesting time travel thing, which I guess they couldn't get away with again because they just did time travel <laughs> in Endgame. There's a three-pronged narrative where you have Thor from way before any of the Earth and Avengers stuff. Thor in the middle of his swashbuckling, going around the realms and being an idiot. He meets Thor at that point first, and they have a big confrontation and stuff goes down. Then you have present-day Thor, if you will, this Thor, the Thor of now, dealing with various gods being dead, and he's going around the universe and trying to figure out what's going on, who's killing these gods, we need to put a stop to this. And then there's future Thor, who's an old man, and he only has one eye, or the, you know, he already kind of only has one eye, or rather, I guess he's had his eye back? It's a little weird. Uh, But the future Thor in the comics, he has an eye patch the same way that Odin did. And he's tired and just worn down from all of this. And clearly something has gone down in between present Thor and future Thor. And in between all of that, you get chapters of Gore's perspective. And it is really dark. It's largely congruent with this version, with the film version, where he realizes that gods don't care about their followers and he goes on a rampage after his family dies and all of that but the way in which it goes down is much bigger much grander befitting a thor story and we just don't get that here i agree so much with what aaron said about he's just a lost clown he's just a little too melodramatic and tuning up the funniness of the melodrama this is a very tragic story but done for laughs and i don't think that the stuff with the kids works it's just oh i'm just gonna steal you away so that i can get thor to come do this there's a million ways you could have gotten thor to give you or trap him into giving you stormbreaker so many ways so you know it's just convoluted and ultimately a wasted concept starts off very interesting and by the end of it it's a bit like eh. the fact that at no point has he thought hey Maybe when I get to Eternity, instead of asking Eternity to kill all the gods in the universe, maybe I ask Eternity to bring my daughter back. In the comics, he lost his wife, doesn't he, as well? Where was she? I think the logic of the film is you can only get one person back or one wish. But at the same time, I guess if he had wished for all the gods to die, that would have been a multiple person thing. So 
Yeah, I don't know. Here's my wish. I want my wife and daughter back. End of wish. And daughter back. Yeah, none of that really pays off, really. If anything, it kind of backtracks on everything that the rest of his story builds on. And it's just a waste of a really good actor, perhaps one of the better Marvel villains we've had in a minute. Or at least he starts off as one of the better villains. As we've discussed many times on this podcast, Marvel has a villain problem. Yes, consistently. Everyone's just defanged and just not big enough of a threat. His kidnapping of the kids kind of raised questions for me in that aren't all his guardians long-lived like gods are? Therefore, are all of them gods? Therefore, how does this fit into the cosmology? It just really made me wonder if any of this had been thought out, and the answer, I think, is no. Yes, I guess there's a distinction between Asgardian and God. I remember the episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Dark World tie-in episode, that starts mm -hmm. with the S.H.I.E.L.D. team cleaning up after the battle in the Dark World. In Greenwich, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, they encounter an Asgardian. I forget his name, but he says something about, you think I hang around the palace with Prince Thor? No, of course I don't. I'm just a guy. So I guess you get the sense of there's classes, I suppose, on Asgard, isn't there? There'll be the gods, so to speak, or the ones that are worshipped as gods, and then it's just the people. Again, they don't tell you, really, but maybe Gore understands that distinction. I don't know that he does. I don't know what the line is. I'm willing to accept that there's a difference between the random Asgardian and the Odin family, but it begs a few questions. Before I get into the questions, my fiance said something interesting when we were leaving the cinema, because I was like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Especially thinking about the Eternals and Celestials aspect of the cosmology that has been introduced recently, and how all of that is supposed to fit together. And my fiancé said, oh, maybe it's that Odin and his family are celestials, like Ego was. And that's where their longevity and whatever the god power is, that's where that comes from. But then I'm like, okay, then what about Loki? Because Loki's a frost giant. And there's nothing about Loki's story as it stands in the comic slash in the films that suggests that he could be celestial or part celestial. And even if he's part celestial, that means then Star-Lord, is he a god in the same way that Gore perceives? I just have a lot of questions, and I don't think that anybody at Marvel seems to be addressing this. There was also a commonality between some of the gods in this film having gold blood or gold dust about them. We've seen Thor bleed red as opposed to the god at the beginning of this film who bleeds gold, and then some of the gods in Omnipotent City, which is, by the way, the worst name ever. <laughs> but aside from that, some of the guards, because I'm just kind of assuming that everyone on that realm, planet, place is a god in some capacity, and they all die in flurry of gold petals or something. There's just gold stuff. And we've seen the Asgardians bleed red. So I am confused about any of this, how it all fits the narrative that they're trying to build. And I'm a little resentful of the retconning that goes on. The Celestials are the gods of this universe. They create stuff and things and life. So that's where I'm at with all of this. We'll come on to our pantheon of deity thing after this Gore thing. One thing I will say I liked about Gore was his ending, his defeat, quote unquote, was really well done. I think that's a good emotional moment that isn't undercut by a joke, actually. I think they really let it happen. And Thor's statement about 
you've won. I'm just going to go over here and spend my last moments with Jane because that's what I want to do. And Gore realising, oh, yeah, I don't have to kill all the gods. I can get my daughter back, but then I'll die because apparently eternity is very stingy when it comes to wish granting. You get one thing. You can't tack a couple of ands on. Yeah, he can't wish for himself. When I finish speaking, that's my wish. I would like unlimited wishes, please, eternity. (laughs) But yes, I would like my daughter back and my wife back and cure Jane's cancer and keep me alive. There you go. Big wish. But I thought that ending was good because it was a bit of a grown-up moment for Thor as well. And I've commented before how he has this childish nature to him sometimes. It's a very grown-up decision where he's just, yeah, you've won, whatever, I can't beat you. I'm just going to make the most of what I have left. And then Gor doesn't quite realise the error of his ways. I don't feel like he necessarily learns anything, but it's that at least I can die doing something good for someone else. That was a good moment. i got to stay in. I'm really going to embrace the hate here, but I'm going to say no. I totally disagree with that. I thought it was a good promise, but I thought it was undeftly executed because if you cut into what these people are actually doing and actually saying, Thor, your hero, says, yeah, you've won. I give up. Yeah, go on. Rather than saying, hang on a minute. Right. My weapon didn't work. What else can I try? I'll try punching him. Right. My hands didn't work. What else can I try? I'll try and talk to him. Even if your hero isn't very good with words, if you're going to be the hero at the end of your own film, then I think you've got to give it a go. You've got to try something here rather than just saying, ah, whatever, it's fine. I know it'll work out because I'm in a Marvel movie, so it'll probably be fine. I can do whatever I want. I I need you to step up here and do something. Even if you don't know what to do, you could still turn to your, I'm going to call her this, even though it sounds unfair, I think that is how they were treated, your sidekick, Mighty Thor, and say, help me. Here's the journey I'm on. Here's where I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn that I can't solve this problem. Help me. It's still your film. You can still do something to develop yourself as a character by asking for help. And a character that can't ask for help, that could be a big moment. Nothing to do with Thor. It's just to say, I want to see him involved rather than just give up. And then when you come to the rest of it, I do agree with you that it was a good idea. That is the ending that I did want. I did want this character to realize that the sword was telling him lies. I did want this character to look back on everything he'd done throughout the film and what was employed from before that and go, my daughter would have hated me for this. My wife would have hated me for this. I'm worse than the gods that I've been slaying. And you don't need to exposition it but you need to see it in a development. A choice needs to be made where you're there with him making that choice. And when it's just, I've got an idea. Hang on, is that the woman in the back who's on the ground or we're about to die? Yes, you, what's your idea? I need a new idea. Could you just wish for something else? <gasps> it's amazing. Oh yeah, I should have done that all along. Oh, brilliant. And it comes across not comically, and I've made it comic there on purpose in order to imply again that that's what this film was to me. It was a comedy. And when it's pure comedy and you try and get to the end and ask me to say, you know, this is a big emotional moment, don't you? I do know that. So if you could just fill in the tears yourself so we can get back to the jokes in the next scene, because I've got this great idea for our father and a daughter in the kitchen. Okay, I'll put it in my diary. I'll, I'll do the crying later afterwards. Oh, brilliant. We can all move on then. As soon as it's asking you to do that by focusing on the comedy, well, then why do we bother? So I think you're right that the setup was great in its foundation. The ending, intellectually, is something I could go, oh, yeah, that could have been amazing. 
but no emotional impact, no belief in the character development. Actor didn't really get to do anything or have their own moment because it was just done by, as I say, calling for the woman in the back to just have an idea. It didn't hit me at all. I felt like it should have been a massive deal. It was just a formality that we needed to get to to see the end of the film. I was robbed by that. This is a hate I brought with me, not one I've learned here. I did want to feel that ending, but I didn't. I just saw it. One thing for me was the inclusion of Eternity, because that is one of those big, weird Marvel concepts that is just kind of here. It could have been accomplished with the use of a wishing well or something. It could have been something less epic oh, yeah. than that. Or it turns out, if you watch Multiverse of Madness, there's these funky universe-controlling items just freaking everywhere, and you can turn up... And they can just flake on you in the moment. But it's not a problem because there'll be another one. So yeah, any old random one. Yeah, thing. but in the comics, Eternity is half of the universe. There's Eternity and then his sister Infinity. And together they make up the universe, existence, oh. time and space. So did Thanos kill one of them? No, no, they're not affected. He didn't wipe out time or the universe. <laughs> no, but he wiped out half of everything, right? They'll be exempt. Well, we're getting on to this now because we had these questions in Eternals. Did half the Celestials go? Exactly. All life. What does that mean? Because none of the Eternals mentioned that half of them disappeared in the intervening period. They're not organic, though. The argument yeah. could be made for them that they're not organic life. They're mechanical. Yeah. That's the whole point for them. But they seem kind of organic. Who knows? Well, they seem, but they're not. That's the whole point. But they're definitely sentient. So where are you drawing that line? Does it affect the Celestials? We had that question for Eternals. It might be that there are beings in the universe that are above the influence of the infinity stones maybe the tva are that because they keep them in their desk drawer so they're not threatened by the infinity stone so maybe there is a hierarchy of sorts where thanos wiped out half of this chunk of the universe but there are things that are unaffected because they're so much more powerful you'd imagine that eternity since eternity is half of the universe that means it wouldn't be affected by something that's in the universe so to speak i'm not making a lot of sense there because it doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> and I suppose that's something you, you can do in a Taika Waititi comedy. You could throw up the explanation of what eternity and infinity is and you have Thor cut about, or Jane, the physicist, say, hang on, did Thanos wipe out one of you? No, 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 we're way above that. <laughs> don't worry about that. So you could have done that. I don't know if either of you have seen Star Trek V, the bit in that film, Kirk encounters God, or what he thinks is God, and he asks a question. <laughs> what does God need with a starship? It's just a really dumb question, but it's actually relevant in the moment. You could have had something like that, I suppose, but instead Eternity was just a wishing well. It wasn't anything else. Mm. I imagine they'll dig into it a bit more, especially when the Silver Surfer starts appearing and things like that. And there's some visual allusions to Galactus and the design in the temple that leads them to Eternity and things. So I think we'll get there. But it just seems weird throwing this in at the last 10 minutes of this film as a throwaway thing. I feel like the MCU's done that a few times with some really massive, weird concepts. Like, we'll just chuck this in, this will do. You can't really analyse it. Though. Well, there's nothing in this film to analyse, yeah. No, but I mean, this whole idea of let's analyse what gods really are and get some rules here. But I think we were having this discussion before off this podcast where I said the MCU is trying to create something in 10 years or recreate something in 10 years that other writers created over decades and didn't bother to check in with each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. If I make gods this, can you get on with that? Well, no, I want to do my thing. And you just go off and do your own thing. So there was no way it can possibly make sense unless you really put the effort in. But then as Kat said, did they put any effort in? I don't think so. So I think she's just given you what you need there. There is no way of analyzing this. It cannot make sense, which is a massive shame 
Because when you get people, again, just to come back to Moon Knight, when they do their duty and say, right, we will get rid of half of our Egyptian gods to fulfill somebody else's storyline. If somebody's going to commit to it, then you'd really want the next person in the chain to say, okay, thanks for doing that. I will try and use it. You don't see people doing that. Doctor Strange, no, we just get rid of all your plot. We don't need that. Thor 4, we get rid of all your previous plot as well. No, we don't need that. It becomes slightly offensive, actually, if they're doing it on purpose and just saying, my story can't use your filth. What? How dare you say that? (laughs) If it is just we couldn't be bothered. It's still a bit offensive because I think you should. I would like to know, why did they give up on it? Did they just think it was too hard to include it? Did they think their story was better? And every director, I guess, would have a different answer. But it, it would be interesting to know, have they faced off this problem themselves? Yeah, well, as good a time as any to come on to the confusion around the gods. So going way back to the first Thor film, we established that the Asgardians are aliens. And they're seen as gods because... They were advanced enough when they first came to Earth and people created a mythology around them. And then as we've gone on, we've encountered different types of gods. For example, the Celestials, the first one we saw was Ego, and then we've seen other ones since then in Eternals. And by the way, there's still a dead Celestial sticking out of the Earth. Oh my God, true. Yeah, the marble one. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a thing that has happened that is just... Zero consequences, I suppose. It's just another weird thing that makes up our world now. And then Moon Knight lent into the gods on some kind of ethereal plane of existence. Aaron, you had a lot of thoughts and confusion about this, so I'm going to let you take the lead on this and try and lead us down a path of understanding, or that we can maybe come to something. Oh, no, 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 no. There's no path of understanding here. I can lead you into the maze to die. That's the best I can do. There's no way out of it. But I'm prepared to do that, if that's what you're asking. Sure, so, let's do it. Let's hold our continuity to account, because it is a shared universe. It should all make sense. All right, okay. So you've got to include things like Black Panther as well, whereby oh, yeah. they follow Bast, I think. So she has her own little pocket dimension somewhere. By the way, I still don't know what the difference between a dimension, a timeline, and a universe and a plane oh, of existence God. is. yeah. Bast was supposed to be in this, wasn't she? I mean, she might be in the... Omnipotent City scene, but I don't know if she has actually. She may have been, but she's also supposed to be connected to the Moon Knight pantheon because mm-hmm. of her earthly origin. One of them, MC, I don't know. And they mention the ancestral plane in that show as well. They do, which is a plane. So it's not a timeline or a dimension or a pocket <laughs> thing. Right? So first of all, there's nothing. Now, I went searching for this on the internet because I thought, right, I'll find all this stuff. And I managed to read two pages of somebody explaining this and got nothing from it. Because <laughs> there's just nothing there. So there's your first problem. It's not possible. I understood the guy's problem because, again, you're trying to take decades worth of comic history and try and bring them together. You poor aren't. There was no way you were going to be able to do that. So yeah. let's put that aside. This is where you can do that, though, because you pick and choose the bits that you want and then mix and match. You'd think. Except are they doing that? No. Oh, at the MCU could have done that. But what they've done is they've said, I want to use the story from the comics as it is. So they take it in from the comics because the comic stuff was popular and they just use it as is, rather than trying to change it too much. Which is weird because other characters, they've completely changed or added stuff in or, or merged them together. So they've shown that they're prepared to do that. But then with other stuff, 
oh, did we just forget? I don't know. They clearly don't have anybody anal enough on the plot writing staff to really pursue this and go, wait, I need to ruin your day again. That's not a plane. <laughs> there are people that would take that job. I could take that job, but no, they don't have that person. They would just keep asking you to leave the meeting. Exactly. Yeah, you're fired. Absolutely. See, chuck all that aside, though, because the original thing was God. So let's come back to God. You've got your Asgardians, and you're trying to put them into the same setup as you've got Celestials, and you're trying to put them into the same setup where you've got the Egyptian gods. You're trying to figure out, right, so the Egyptian gods, apparently they went away somewhere else. Okay, so they could have been here, like Thor and Odin was. We could allow for that. Conchu could have been at the meeting. It could have been, but they appear to be quite spiritual in their setup rather than having a physical body. And you can even go a little bit further if you want. You can say, right, Odin, well, he used magic to be that way. So maybe he grew into it. So he adopted his god status. If the other Asgardians didn't, Okay, so how did he get that? Did he use magic? Is that from a belief system? Because that's one of the most common ones. Gods get power from their belief. Oh, I think that gets mentioned somewhere. Oh, yeah, we get stronger with belief. That can't be true because the god in Thor 4 let his entire planet of followers die and had one guy left. If his power came from belief, he would be holding on to Gore the God Butcher and saying, please believe in me, you're the only one I've got left. So it can't be that. We have to assume it's just random magic that you just trip over one day. Oh, is it that? Oh, amazing. I found infinite power in my shoe. Excellent. So like in Clash of the Titans where they're fueled by worship. It could have been that, but it's clearly not. It can't be because we've already wiped that out with with Gore's own storyline. It's a scoring system because Zeus mentions who's got the most sacrifices or something like that in their name. Okay, so it's just something fun they do. Right. Okay, but hang on a minute. Let's compare the Egyptian gods to the Greek gods. They came about at about the same time, but the Egyptian gods are very much, we need to get involved with humanity. We need to make sure that we're leading them in a direction we think are right. We're too arrogant to consider their own perspective. We know we're right, but we'll get them to believe. Okay. Take that to Zeus. Was he the same? No, he apparently thinks they're a scoring system. But coming to power, where do they get their power from? No idea. We just know that they're completely different, and there's no way of reconciling that. So maybe we go on to the belief system instead then. Maybe we can't use the belief system to figure out what their power level Maybe if we use the belief system to figure out something about where they come from or how they interact with humans. The Egyptian gods, they have specifically said that you go on to the afterlife that you believe in and you kind of create that with our power. So when you've got Stephen and the various personalities getting so involved in this Egyptian mythology, you'd think, okay, well, yeah, he's really embraced that. He probably was raised in a Jewish household that we can assume was devout enough. We saw them obeying various traditions and so on. But what happened to the Jewish afterlife then? Because that was quickly eroded by him becoming Egyptian. But, you know, shattered mind and all that, where you are right now, it's what you were thinking about. Maybe I'll give you that. It doesn't seem like you've cheapened it too much. However, let's talk about Mighty Thor. Apparently, she believes in Valhalla by turning up to one battle with a weapon she found one day. Mm-hmm. And I know she had a traumatic time with her cancer. I don't want to take that from her. That's a belief system? No, it isn't. So that means the Egyptian gods were lying for their own benefit. But if they were, why? What is allowing a human to create their own afterlife possibly get them? 
is that the scoring system. I get as many people in my background and more than you. I've got loads of them. Mine's better than yours. My field of wheat is much better than your silly river thing. <laughs> I don't know. So as far as I can tell, you can go into whatever plane of existence you want at any point and the gods have no control over that whatsoever. They're just lying. Apparently, you can become a god by any mean you feel like. Like if you're Odin, you can become a certain type of god. If you're Egyptian, you're another type of god. So they're all probably just aliens. So the word god doesn't mean anything. They're all just selfish aliens. And we're about to see the multiverse collapse anyway through Loki and Kang. So it's all going to become meaningless then anyway. So my advice is, now you're in the middle of this maze, is get a helicopter and pretend you never came here. <laughs> I think in some ways the MCU shot itself in the foot by being a bit reluctant to lean into the Asgardians being magical beings because I wonder if back in phase one they felt like the audience might not accept that when it's supposed to be sharing the screen with Iron Man, for example. So it's we have to make them aliens because people will accept that a bit more, but then that raises questions around, well, they're not gods, they're just aliens that primitive cultures believed were gods. And then you can extrapolate that across Zeus and so on. Similar idea, I suppose. And I guess Jane believing in Valhalla, if she knows the Asgardians exist, maybe she's come to believe that Valhalla exists, but I can even counter that without anybody having to butt in by the fact is she knows that Thor is an alien, so therefore that makes scientific sense to her. So then an afterlife doesn't necessarily make scientific sense. Maybe if they'd establish she'd become spiritual as a last-ditch desperation of her cancer diagnosis, you could have bought into the, okay, she wants to go to Valhalla because she has to believe it exists because sheer nothingness, non-existence is too frightening for her. And again, that's a reason for her to get there in a way. So that's fine, I suppose. But the Egyptian gods are definitely different to the Asgardians because they're ethereal, aren't they? They're not corporeal in any way. They have to work through avatars. So are they just bodiless aliens? Are they just pure consciousness aliens? I don't know. This is why I say I can lead you into the maze, but you can't get out because at no point have you been given enough answers or building blocks to work with. It's a purposeful choice to not go in it. It's very much a don't look behind the curtain here, please. And to a certain extent, actually, that's fine if your story's good enough, because we all remember watching The Avengers and thinking, that was an amazing film. And then some genius in the back said, there's no way they could have talked to each other. They don't have a radio. And then they retcon it in. No, there's something in their ears. It's fine. <laughs> but we didn't care. Who cares where the radio is? The radio is in their shirt. It's in their pants. It's in their shoes. Who cares where it is? It was amazing. We were told to look the other way for a good reason. And we did. And it didn't spoil our enjoyment. Maybe we're coming to the point here now, though, where we're still being asked to not look behind the curtain. But the curtain at the moment is so ragged with some of the setups. If this cat says, did anybody actually try to make a good curtain here? If the answer is no, then yeah, your attention is drawn and you can't look away. Well, then let's talk about Omnipotent City. We're going to open this Pandora's box of pain for Cat because she oh, hated yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Has been teased up to this point. So we had Russell Crowe's Zeus. He was having a lot of fun. And I thought his performance was wacky. And that was basically all I thought about it. They believed that it killed him. He's awful. As in, he's talking about how many sacrifices have you had recently and all that and talking about orgies and things like that. I suppose that's kind of what you expect from the Greek gods based on what's made it into pop culture around them. But we have an actual Greek person here. So Kat, take it away. Zeus. All right. Strap in, you guys, because this 
<laughs> this is a DEFCON situation. Ms. Marvel, we had a Pakistani heritage guest. Thor, we have a Greek guest. Yeah. We're hitting on all cylinders here. Finally, my time for my Greekness to shine. First of all, I found the accent offensive. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is this racist? Straight up, why does the Greek guy have an accent, but none of the other gods that are relevant to a culture have an accent relevant to that country? Thor, etc., they don't have a Norse or Norwegian or whatever accent. Khonshu, etc., none of them sound Arabic or Egyptian. They just have vague British accents, I guess, or in the case of the hippo goddess... She has a straight-up American accent, I think. Thor just has a Chris Hemsworth trying to do a British accent. accent. Exactly. So it's not consistent, first of all. And second of all, it's played for laughs in a way that I think kind of borders on that stereotypical view of Greeks as lazy. I suppose the gods earn that because they're just supposed to be sitting up on Olympus and sipping on nectar and ambrosia and just having a good time and in the case of Zeus having sex with a lot of women against their consent. So the orgy stuff and whatever did not bother me and I'd even find the laziness jokes cute if it wasn't for him not helping them and that being he's too scared or too cowardly or too lazy and he doesn't want to lift a finger from his golden throne on this stupidly named planet realm place. I was very offended. I was incensed. By the end of that scene, I was like, this movie has lost me. If it had me for a minute, it lost me now. Kinda how dare you. Why is it okay for Taika Waititi to take this jab? And I know that Russell Crowe enjoys doing silly accents and whatnot, but this was outrageous. I haven't seen anybody else have this reaction, and maybe I'm being a little too personal with it, but especially in the aftermath of the Greek crisis in 2010, I have had enough of jokes about how Greeks are lazy, how everybody else is doing the work and Greece is just sitting around in the sun doing nothing. It's the stereotypical view that has been really harmful, not gonna lie. It's been really harmful and not accurate, so I'm very upset by this. And then the side note of what does all of this mean outside of it just being a joke for this movie. That's the end of my TED talk. I hate this with everything in my heart. And it really soured any potential of, yeah, this movie has a few overplayed jokes. The goats screaming got old after like two screams. My God, we get it. The goats scream. We get it. Jesus. Every single time they're on screen, they scream. That's a guarantee. I'll never watch this movie again. And then the Zeus stuff happens, and it's like, well, I've had enough. I'm absolutely never watching this movie again. I've rewatched The Dark World. That's where the bar is. At this point, it's offensive. And maybe I'm the only one. I don't know how Greek people have reacted to this. They probably think it's all, hey, there's Greeks in the Marvel Universe. Finally, representation. And it's like, is this it? <laughs> I'm not here for that. I'm really not here for that. Also, somebody tell Russell Crowe that that's an Italian accent, my dude. You're not even doing a good job. Apparently he played it with two accents. So he did his scenes twice with another accent on, I guess, the other take. But I don't know what the other one was supposed to be. But I didn't even pick out Italian from what he was trying to do. I was just, okay, what is this? What are you doing? Yeah, I guess so. It was just a weird mix. He had a lot of body language things 
down that I thought was really interesting. There's obviously a big Greek community in Australia, so Crow has probably grown up around a lot of Greek people. There is a certain body language that is very Greek. If you know, you know. <laughs> it's a little difficult to explain in audio form, but there's a certain kind of center of gravity that Greek people have in particular. It comes close with Spanish people and Portuguese people, I've noticed. We carry ourselves in a similar way, but it's a very unique way of moving, and it was very accurate, and that was impressive. But then everything else, and in particular the script, oh boy, really tainted the whole experience. I think the thing that the film wants you to focus on is the whole never-meet-your-heroes angle. Sure. Yeah. Thor, he starts off as being a Zeus fanboy. This actually plays into something that he's trying to do, this whole, I'm going to go to Zeus and he'll give me an army and we'll go get the kids. It's going to be a big heroic adventure. And then that fails. The whole appealing to the gods to get an army thing just was never going to work. Maybe it's calling back to his childhood. He worshipped Zeus. Not worshipped in the sense that his followers worship him, but in the sense that you might a comic book character, funnily enough. And then it takes, what, 10 seconds to shatter that illusion that Thor had. He says something, he's yeah. like, whoa, that's rough. He doesn't live up to his reputation. And then that's it. The spell is broken, so to speak. It's in that scene, through Zeus particularly, I'm sitting there thinking... Is Gore right? Should he walk in here and just slaughter all of these gods? Because they're awful. And then there's the film trying to tell me every god except Thor sucks. Is that the message? Is that a message? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I would have been fine if that was kind of the message. But as Aaron said earlier, it doesn't pay off. It's not like Gore at any point is conflicted about Thor personally and is like, hey, maybe I shouldn't get rid of this guy because he seems okay. He seems to care. So I don't know that the film even tries to make this point. No, not really. But it's implied in the fact that Gore the God Butcher's there, as in you have this question around, is he right to kill the gods? And then therefore, where does Thor fit in on that? Is he a good one? Is he the only good one? Because you do have a weird line where he talks about, we'll be back with children. We'll be back to feast with children. Yeah. Not on the children. Those were dark times, shameful times. Hang on a minute. Is Thor eating children? Yeah. Cheap gag for no other reason than being a cheap gag. And that's the intent. You're supposed to dismiss it. But if you don't dismiss it, you're just thinking. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we following a character that has just willingly eaten children at some point in the past? All right, he regrets it now, but he did it. I'm not sure you can come back from that. Once you've eaten children, I think you're beyond the point of redemption. But I guess we'll never find out. They won't do a gritty flashback where you see the Asgardians feasting on children of some sort. But I do wonder if that feeds in at that sacrifice angle as well. Here's me overthinking it. Zeus wanted sacrifices in his name, so is that what they were feasting on? Who knows? As horrible as that would have been, at least it would have started to make more sense as they tie things together. That's not the direction I want them to go in, but it would have been a direction. But it would have been something, yeah. I think the fight in Omnipotent City, when the film becomes available for YouTube video editing, someone will change the colour of the gold blood to red blood and it will be the goriest scene ever in the MCU. Mm. I feel like that's something they did to make it cartoony and fun, but yeah, people are bleeding everywhere. Thor's covered in it by the end. Mm -hmm. I look forward to that YouTube mashup edit thing, I guess. At some point, someone will do it. Guaranteed. That's, of course, the scene where you get to see more of Thor than you've ever seen before, which a lot of people seem to oh, like. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of frightened by how huge Chris Hemsworth was in this film. He's never been bigger. It's not natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. In the first film, when we see him shirtless, he has a gigantic upper body and then a teeny weeny waist. I think he's bigger in this, though. I don't know. He's better proportioned now. 
I feel. Apparently his wife said, no, this is too much. Have a sandwich, please, Chris. God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> I liked his back tattoos, though, the R.I.P. Loki tattoos. That was a fun little detail. <laughs> that was a fun detail. Yeah. And it's something they CGI'd over in the trailer. Oh, yeah, of course. It's a funny joke, and if it had been in the trailer, then it wouldn't have landed as well in the film. Who do you suppose he went to to get tattooed? There's a question. <laughs> Clearly he spends enough time on Earth, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there's that much depth to that question. Well, he has to go to someone that can pierce his skin with a needle. It's not that he's unpierceable. He's not Luke Cage. Good luck to Luke Cage getting a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be possible, just because the same guy Thor does, I guess. <laughs> the omnipotent city thing. I would have liked to see him spend a bit more time there. Or even if the gods had name tags or something, so you could find out who they were. Because they pointed out a couple of them. It feels like it's a good spot to have a cameo of someone you maybe have seen before or something. I don't know that many of them were cameos or anything like that, although they do mention the god of carpentry. (laughs) (laughs) God of dumplings. Good god. (laughs) It's a great way to not get the Christians angry. I laughed at that. In the comics, the Christian slash Jewish god is a character in the... Marvel Universe somewhere. I don't really know much about them, but they do exist. So Jesus will exist as well. Whether he's ever been introduced or not, I'm really not sure. The only member of the Greek pantheon we see in this is Zeus. Well, I suppose Hercules. And then Hercules. Yeah, yeah. And Aaron, we've already discussed this, but we should record it for posterity. In Eternals, we have Athena, who was the basis of the Athena myth, as established in that film. Here we go. So what about the Greek Athena? Where's she? Is she a different thing? Do they share duty on the myth? I had to look this up because this was driving me up the wall as well. So I did look this one up. Athena is Athena? The best explanation I found for it, and by best I mean the one that I thought was most consistent, not actually the best or most enjoyable, (laughs) was that Athena was a goddess doing her thing like all the other Greek gods were, apparently getting sacrifices. And then this Eternal turned up whose name was Athena, and Athena said, hang on a minute, I'm getting a bit bored of doing my job. You appear to be able to do it just as well and get me all the worshippers and so on I want. Would you like to pretend to be me for a bit? I'll go on holiday and you can do your thing, whatever you're doing here with all those weird monsters that are coming around. And Athena said, that sounds fair. I'm going to be here anyway. I'd like a nice role to fulfill. I quite like people to bring me grapes like you appear to be getting. So let's do this pact. So Athena sods off and Athena just steps up and takes over. And I thought, that's awful. But it does make sense. (laughs) It does actually at least fulfill some internal consistency. So I've decided to accept that as one of the best parts of religion in the MCU. So they both exist, but Athena's just gone. Just chilling out somewhere. Yeah, got bored. Probably went to Omnipotent City, and there we go. Okay, I'll take that. It's an explanation. It's not something we're ever given as an explanation, (laughs) but you would think it's something they might throw in because we have the two already existing in this universe. There's no hope. It's another example of the fact that there was just no hope. Two different comic books were written at different times, and unless you rebuild the characters accordingly, but that was possibly too much for them to do and keep the films reasonably separate. So it is what it is. I thought that they had started off the MCU, at least in the first couple of phases, were very good at uniting narratives that seemed very disparate from each other. That's why I'm 
disappointed now because I thought you could do it. I thought you'd figure it out how to unite these stories that were very separate, written at very different times and things like that. It's like I said, adaptation, you pick and choose and you combine it all together. Back in phase one, for example, someone could have written a book, here's your writer's Bible on the gods, and every mention of the gods from here on out has to come back to this set of parameters. And then you follow it. And you could have built something really interesting and cohesive out of it. And you even delineate the difference between Asgardians, aliens worshipped as gods, Egyptian gods, actually gods, or ethereal beings that are worshipped as gods, and so on. You could have had those kind of differences. When I first saw the trailer for this, I thought that Omnipotent City was going to be Olympus. It's not. But I thought that Olympus, as I thought it was, looked a bit like Asgard in its design with the floating platforms and things like that. So I was just thinking, okay, the Greek pantheon are advanced aliens in the same way the Asgardians are. I understand that because that's fine. They just come to Earth and then people worship them. You deal with that, but they just muddy it by not really explaining it. And then, as we've already established, Zeus is awful. So, yeah, fine. And then he dies but doesn't, as you find out in the post credit scene. The thing I will come on to is though, Valhalla. We see it in this film. Jane appears there. She's greeted by Heimdall, who says, yeah, so you're dead. That's inconvenient, but welcome to Valhalla. That concerns me because it feels like it's probably going to be somewhere they can go back and forth from in the future. According to the comics, no, but I wonder what they're going to do in the films because everything goes. But in the comics, people can visit Valhalla who are still alive, but those who are dead can't leave. That in itself could be a device. We'll see. Well, yeah, it seems to set up a interesting end point for Thor where he gets to just die and live happily ever after with Jane and Valhalla. Yeah, I guess so, at some point. But I feel like it will be used as a revolving door at some point. I hope not, but I don't think so, because a lot of those characters, the actors will have had enough. I think Hemsworth has one more movie in him, probably. Well, he said he'll play it as long as Kevin Feige wants him to be around, so who knows? I mean, sure, but I think one more and retire. I've had enough of Thor at this point, <laughs> and he's my favorite character, so all right, that's enough now. So I hope that that's not the case because there's only so much really you can do and you got to leave room for the next generation of superheroes to be the Avengers. Otherwise, what's the point of building up the rest of the roster if you're just going to be bringing back dead characters from Valhalla? So I hope not. Let the dead die. It seems a bit of a waste to just have Jane become Thor in this film and then never seen again. Yeah, the way that this was handled was a waste. Because they had everything else happening, because they had the God Butcher thing happening at the same time as the Jane story, it kind of means that you couldn't truly do justice to both, to either. Because those two comic stories are separate. There's the God Butcher run, and then there's the Mighty Thor run. Those are two separate stories by the same writer, but they're separate. The fact that they squished them together to the effect of everything we've been talking about today, it's a bummer. And I think both of these storylines deserved so much better. Watching that Comic Tropes video about the runs, I was like, oh man, this is the movie we could have <laughs> had, but instead we got this? I was very upset. That movie wouldn't be made by Taika Waititi, would it? It'd be made by someone else. Exactly. He is not the director for this. Yeah, and I sometimes feel like that about MCU films as well, in terms of we're going to chuck in elements of this famous story arc into this film, but it's going to be a background element. As good as Ragnarok is, it's a bad Planet Hulk movie. And now we can't have a Planet Hulk movie because we've already done it. <laughs> we just can't do it again. Oh, the Hulk goes off to a planet and fights in the gladiatorial arena. Well, we saw that. It's a shame that we're now not going to get that. And there's a few other stories that they've told in the background of other films that we'll just never get because they've already told them, which again 
is unfortunate. It's kind of rushing through some of these things. So yeah, the Mighty Thor story is a film in itself and the God of the God Butcher story is a film in itself. Again, we'll never get that. You missed your chance. You had one opportunity to do both of these and you've squandered it in that way. Yeah. Do you think Hercules will come to anything? Obviously they've cast him. Yes. wonder who will show up next. Maybe with She-Hulk they could interact at some point. They have a connection in the comics. Oh, that I don't know. I'm told that he and Thor become kind of bros. He is sent to hurt Thor or something, and then they're just like, hey, and they just bro out. The thing about the MCU is Thor's a lot like what Hercules is in the comics. So they're not going to do that again, I suppose. And they established that he's a bit of an angry guy, it seems. He's going to be there with a very specific purpose, unless he appears in a Taika Waititi film, in which case he'll be a quip machine like everybody else. Yeah. But they can't just do Thor again because they've already done Hercules' characterization through Thor. They turned him into the comic Hercules in a lot of ways. But I don't know where he'll show up. They seem to be just putting things on the board and it's like, well, pick this up at some point. Don't worry about it. It'll appear somewhere. As a last thing then, I had a bit of a question and it's maybe we can end on a more positive note than this. It depends how this conversation goes. But there was a bit of controversy about the film. Well, I don't think either of us picked up on here when we first watched it that I became aware of when someone pointed out to me. There was a bit where Thor dead names Heimdall's son. I wasn't clear on whether they were doing a trans character or not, but dead names Axel, who was named by Heimdall to be Astrid, and repeats the dead naming several times before Korg eventually says, he wants to be called Axel, call him Axel. And then it's kind of dropped after that. Kat, you're much more of an authority than either of us will be on this. So what did you think of this? Was your reading this was over the line or was it just one of those buffoonish Thor things? I don't think that it was meant to be that nefarious. I'm not aware of the character in the comics or anything like that. Astrid is a female name usually so I don't know if that's meant to be. In fact the dead naming thing. The whole movie is a Guns N' Roses love letter. To me the way that I read it was the kid was wearing a Guns N' Roses shirt at some point And there were a lot of references throughout in the new Asgard location. There was a lot of people wearing old rock shirts and things like that. And so I just thought that it was a, oh, the kid just really likes Axl Rose. That's the joke. The joke is that he really likes Guns N' Roses because he lives on Earth now. That's how I read it. At no point is there a note that Axl was born female or that Heimdall has a daughter, perhaps in the previous film or anything like that. This is the first time we've seen this kid, or at least... I don't remember seeing this kid before. But also, I don't know if Astrid is also a male name sometimes. I'm not really well-versed. So I didn't read into it as Thor being a transphobic buffoon. He is a buffoon, generally speaking. He is the himbo to end all himbos. It can be a sore point for trans people, the use of not their chosen name, the use of their given name. It's a hurtful act. And so I understand if you come from that place and this has been your experience and you have family and friends who are refusing to use your chosen name and they're insisting that you're not who you are and all of that, I can see how this could be read that way. And it's not an invalid reading. As with a lot of art, your lived experience will inform how you see something. Case in point, my entire anti-Russell Crowe rant earlier. So that's not to invalidate the personal experience of these people who are reacting a certain way. It's not how I read it, but then again, I'm not a part of that community, so it doesn't affect me in the same way. It's not a hurtful experience that I have personally had. 
I don't even know if the reaction is that widespread. I think it's only a little bit. It's not that widespread. Literally, if you hadn't brought this up, I wouldn't have known. The way I read the scene was, he's corrected a few times and then he never makes a mistake again. It's not massive, but it is growth, isn't it? Or it's the recognition that we're all going to make mistakes. Well, we're in this transitional period between the stuff that we took for granted and everything that's coming out in terms of pronouns that people want to use and all that stuff. Mm. I've made mistakes and been corrected and then tried my best to correct myself from then on out many times. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, anyone that says, if you make a mistake, people jump down your throat. That has never been my experience. My experience has always been, oh, it's this. And I say, okay, sorry. And then that's it. And then you move on. Yeah. I also don't think that Waititi would do this. I don't think so either. And paint Thor as some kind of transphobe monster, because he's obviously pro-LGBT if not a member also of the community, who knows, shrug, question mark. He likes to keep things light. I just don't think that this would be the hill to die on would be this movie. For all the positive LGBT things in this movie, I just don't think that was the intention. Yeah, it's the, I knew your father, he gave you a really tough Viking name and I want to honour that and then realising, oh, that's not what he wants to be called. Okay. Axel Rose is also tough. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. I was glad I got that in there then because people want to know, or I want to know. Someone wants to know. So, sorry that. Last bit, a couple of highlights slash lowlights. We've covered a lot of various things. We haven't really talked much about the action sequences. I love the black and white one. That was really cool. Really visually cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And I really liked the moment where Thor was able to bequeath his power to... The kids. And it's that wish fulfillment thing, in a way. The idea that Thor is giving the kids the power to fight the monsters under their bed, almost. And that's really cool. Yeah. I saw this meme, and it was the end game bit, where everyone's formed behind Cat. And it's like, Avengers! And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Everyone here, for a limited time, will have the power of Thor. And then Thanos is like, oh, crap. Oh, right. That's a lost opportunity, yeah, for sure. Maybe he only just learned how to do it. I suppose there needs to be a big hand wave as to why he doesn't do that from now on, every time they're in a fight. <laughs> I will definitely agree that the black and white sequence was great. Generally speaking, I thought that the color was done incredibly well. Just the color grade throughout was amazing. There were quite a few different looks. I thought the stuff on Earth and New Asgard and whatever was graded a different way to the space stuff, to the black and white stuff, to the gore, gray, black and white, because it all starts off kind of normal looking. And then as he gets corrupted by the sword and stuff, it all gets gray and monochrome, just beautifully, beautifully done. So that was definitely a highlight for me. And I thought the soundtrack for the most part was pretty good. The score was very forgettable though. Four Guns N' Roses songs on the soundtrack. <laughs> that's what I mean. The soundtrack, the Guns N' Roses stuff, that's interesting. Okay, you've found an artist that vibes with the mood of the film. That much I didn't mind, but what I did not like as much was the fact that the score was forgettable and a little hammy. The first couple Thor movies had Patrick Doyle make some absolute gems in terms of themes if you play the Thor Kills the Destroyer theme, which is perhaps the seminal Thor song from that score, nothing comes close in this movie. There's just no instrumental bit that's like, oh man, that was amazing. What a moment. But then again, they were pelting us with too many jokes for us to notice anything else. Yeah, and it was basing itself on the songs, I suppose, rather than the actual orchestration. Oh yeah. And Ragnarok had that kind of electro soundtrack to it as well. Yeah, it was synthy. It was synth poppy, and that was great. The 80s synth. Yeah, and the black and white scene, I really like that you see the 
little touches of colour through the cracks in Mjolnir. Yeah, yeah, Little bits of colour here and there, so they're not totally drained of colour. It's a really interesting looking scene, especially when Marvel gets a lot of pelters for the visual language. I think they really knocked out of the park and some stuff. And we saw it in the trailer, but the giant god that was felled off screen and Korg and Thor standing in front of it looked great. Shame that the artist that drew it originally is getting absolutely no money for it. Ooh, yeah, that's the other thing about Disney right now, isn't it? They're not paying anybody. It's kind of astounding to me that they're short-shrifting creators, they're short-shrifting production companies and people who are on staff to make these movies, and Disney's just going, oh no, we're not going to pay that. (laughs) Like, they can't afford it. The biggest media conglomerate in the world. It's a disgrace. And pretty much every major studio making effects-laden stuff is doing essentially the same thing. It's this undervalued industry. But Marvel have always been like this with the comic creators for the stuff that's being adapted. Was it Ed Brubaker said that he got more for his cameo in Winter Soldier than he did for any intellectual property thanks that he got for Winter Soldier, that kind of stuff. So there's a big thing there and i read this thing i can't remember the ins and outs of it but it was this idea of a comic book artist that invents a character will get so much money for their appearance on screen but that money can be diluted if the scene is filled with different characters that have been adapted either by them or by different writers if you have a scene with all of the new avengers in it these characters have all been created by different writers so you have say kamala kate bishop etc etc the money for the creation of those characters will be divided around every single person that had a hand in creating any character in that scene. So Kate Bishop, Kamala Khan, Yelena Belova, anybody. It's just this whole messy thing about, we've contractually found a way to pay people less money. There's also the whole thing of Disney refusing to pay royalties to authors of movie novelizations that have been around for a very long time. People who wrote Star Wars novels. What was it, Alan, whatever his name is? Yes, and others. Everybody who's written a novelization pre-acquisition of Lucasfilm, etc. Disney is now claiming that they acquired the rights to the stuff, but they did not acquire the obligation to pay the author. (laughs) You can pick and choose. You can buy the thing, but the person who made the thing... What? There's an ongoing situation with the Science Fiction Writers Association and people taking Disney to court. It's not a good look. And the thing is, they can afford all the legal battles, but it would cost less to just pay the authors. I don't understand this. I really don't. Alan Dean Foster was the guy's name I had to look up because it was bugging me. He was the one that kicked off about it mostly, or he was the one that... Made people aware of it. He's the one who started it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He started the hashtag Disney Don't Pay, I think, movement. It's ongoing, though. That started about a year ago. And since then, more and more writers have come out to say that it's the same thing. They're not getting paid their fair royalties. And we are part of the problem because we're watching these films. Uh, yeah. It's a grey area. We'll live in that grey area. Like the black and white action sequence. We'll live there. It's fine. Aaron, do you have any... Thing to add in the action stuff. One thing I'll add is I like that Mjolnir is a projectile weapon now as well. That was pretty cool. Nice little detail. Yeah, that was great. I don't think I've got anything extra on the action. It was comedy action. It was good. Didn't pick anything memorable up though, actually. I think that's my comment. I guess I don't remember it. So maybe that's my comment. Fair enough. I think the black and white one is probably your selling point. That's the one that you cheer about. And the, the kids being empowered. That's probably a big moment for a lot of people. Yeah, it was a nice idea. I suppose I didn't think of that as an action moment. It was cool, the kids jumping up and down and spinning around and doing these amazing heroic manoeuvres. So it was certainly fun to watch. A lightning-spewing teddy bear, or rabbit, or whatever it was. I mean, who's not going to like that? (laughs) It was weird to think of it what it was, though, when I saw some of the write-ups afterwards. 
because I didn't realise that all of this had come from the idea that the director and all the actors were just really keen to get all their kids into the film. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, well, that's cute. But given that I'm thinking you didn't really spend enough time developing the plot for me, what you actually spent most of your time was just making sure your kids could be in it. I thought, well, thanks for that. People paid a lot of money for this and other people are being paid zero money for this, as you've just said, and you're having a great time with some nepotism. I think it was cute and it was fun to watch. I don't deny that. But the fact that the kids were in it at all was a just a bit weird so it was a strange payoff for something that i didn't need to see that was done not for my benefit but was done so the people involved kids could love their parents a bit more and presumably we see chris hemsworth's daughter now in other future films so he's just kicked off her career good for her but again it's a bit of a heavy cost to pay setting somebody else's career up if it works for Will Smith. Maybe she's an amazing actress. I don't know, actually. It could be stealing stuff away from her that she's truly earned, but I don't know. A bit cynical. Move on. Fair enough. I think we are done then. I think we've covered the length and breadth of this film quite significantly. So, Kat, what are your wrap-up thoughts? My wrap-up thoughts are too bad, so sad, never watching this movie again. It just took everything that I enjoyed about the Thor story, which, by the way, was my gateway into the MCU, and just kind of pissed all over it, and not here for it, and it's a disappointing turn for Taika Waititi for me, all around, two stars out of five, one of my least favourite Marvel movies. Okay, Aaron, your final wrap-up thoughts? I didn't realise how much I disliked this film until I heard Cat <laughs> speak. <laughs> Supervillain origin story. Now I've heard Kat's arguments, I've realised where my thoughts should have been. So we've got me back on track, got me back to the dark side. <laughs> There's a really dark reading of that where it's, I like this film, well you should hate it and here's why. Oh yeah, I guess I do hate it now. I guess I do. Was not my intention, Aaron, for all that's worth. <laughs> no, fair enough. The thing that I took away from this film was... It was marginally funny, but otherwise I've almost forgotten a lot of it already. So it, it didn't impact on me at all. Therefore, nothing has been ruined for me. Yeah. I might still find some of the jokes reasonably amusing, but I got nothing out of the film because of all the stuff we've said about characters that just weren't used. So the humour defended me from falling too far into the dark side. But fortunately, you guys were here to just push me off. Happy to help. Into free fall. <laughs> Fair enough. My wrap-up thoughts are, despite what I've said over the last period of time that this podcast has lasted, I do still enjoy this film. I will watch it again. And I think I'll be able to just watch it on the level of, I'm just going to let it make me laugh, because... That's clearly what it wants to do. And then, yeah, we've just spent the last period of time analysing it and explaining why it doesn't work and things like that. But I don't like to live in this world of binaries that the internet wants everybody to be in. I don't want to live in this, I unequivocally hate this or I unequivocally love this type thing. It's not my favourite MCU film. It never will be, but I still enjoy it. And I will watch it again at some point when I buy the disc because I've bought every other MCU disc so I'm buying this one and yeah. it'll be on Disney Plus probably before this podcast goes up by the time I get around to editing it because that's the way these things work now apparently but still liked it. I enjoy just watching Chris Hemsworth doing comedy stuff so I think on that level it still works and continues to work so don't at me or do at me do whatever you want. I probably won't see it because I don't check Twitter that often. <laughs> I don't think you should say that, by the way. <laughs> to your audience, by the way, I'm just not going to bother with you. I don't care if you're there. Well, no, if people are atting me, that means that they're going to attack me. Oh, 
I think that's what that means. Is that what internet speak is, Kat? Is that what it means? It's don't tag me on Twitter because we will start a fight. That sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't even think I feel passionately enough to fight about it. So if you're going to attack me for my opinion on this film, then you'll be met with bland indifference. Shrug.gif. <laughs> exactly. I will find a gif of someone shrugging and send it to you, and that will be the end of it. So mm. give it a go. Why not? <laughs> After about three weeks when I finally checked Twitter. So it'll take a while, but you'll get it. Anyway, that was our chat about Thor, Love and Thunder. I would like to thank YouTuber Immy2 for the supplied music. And Kat and Aaron, thank you for both appearing on this podcast. No problem, and thank you for having me as always. Always my pleasure. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please do hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And most of these places now have the opportunity to rate. Apple definitely does, Spotify definitely does. And they usually do it in the form of stars. So, Kat... How many stars? Five out of five, please. Five out of five, unlike the rating that you gave this film. Yes, the opposite to what I gave this film, please and thank you. (laughs) Well, the opposite would be four, wouldn't it? It doesn't bear analysis, much like this film. Not a low rating is my point. The highest rating you can give, so do that. If you want to talk Thor, Love and Thunder, the MCU, the gods of the MCU, or anything else, contribute to that conversation. You can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave us a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Bye.